Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one-star hosts talk about five, four, and three-star prospects and everything in between. I'm your one-star host, 10K Trevino, and as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner in crime, the hurricane himself, Gerard Martinez. Gerard, yesterday, spooky season, Halloween, I got to give out candy at my house. What about you? Yeah, you also dressed up for Tunnel Vision. I did. I, you I, I dressed up yeah, Halloween Eve and went with it. <laughs> I dressed up like a tiger on Halloween, giving out candy. So I, I was fully into Hollow's Eve, baby. Wow, fully. you had so you had two different costumes. You had the costume for Tunnel Vision and you had a different costume for handing out candy. What do you think? I'm just gonna walk around with one <laughs> costume all season? No, you need options. You had you need options all the time, Gerard. Yeah, well, I didn't uh, actually dress up. Gave out some candy. Uh, got the kids uh, were out there, you know, doing their trick or treating, and so um, yeah, it was uh, felt like like a long stretch into Halloween at my house. Just with you know, you got three kids under the age of ten, so it's like Halloween's a big deal. So we get Halloween going in September, and then it rolls on through to October. But then we're in this weird limbo stage and i was talking with a friend about this and it was like do you put out your christmas right after halloween to try to get more of the christmas season and the christmas spirit going or do you leave that little bit of time that you're actually in thanksgiving mode and fall mode and you have some of maybe your thanksgiving ornaments i usually throw thanksgiving ornaments and halloween ornaments all together like i kind of give it a sort of Mm. overall fall happy harvest sort of look at my house for the kids but i'm a little bit in the limbo stage where it's like maybe we just go all in for christmas after we put the halloween stuff out i'm just not 100 percent sure i know that the jack-o'-lanterns and the and the witches and the black cats and all that stuff that goes up at my house and my folks house is gonna go away here this week but do we leave some of the thanksgiving doodads out and give it some time with thanksgiving because thanksgiving is i mean an actual holiday Halloween's not really a holiday for most people. Or we just go straight into Christmas. Because I know the stores, they already got the Christmas trees out and all the Christmas paraphernalia. They had that out like two or three weeks ago. Yeah, I'm more leaning towards you let it breathe a little bit. You don't got to go jump right into Christmas. Because Christmas season is very exhausting for us in terms of everyone in general just shopping for presents, going to malls online shop. It's very hectic. And then on top for us, it's like also early signing period. We we got shortly after that, we're going to uh, Army All-American Bowl, whatever. So that's a very hectic time of the year. So I try to save off on that as much as possible. Those trees bring me to that 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 chaotic time period in our recruiting cycle life. So I would say hold off, let it breathe, let the turkeys uh, mingle out a little bit more. Let those, uh, what are those horn baskets with all the the vegetables inside. Let that hang out a little bit. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. Someone will tell me what it's called. Uh, uh, I'm assuming. It's a cornucopia, I think, right? I don't know. I you're, you're smarter than me. I don't. I don't know. What... Cornucopia with the with the little pumpkins. And yeah, the, yeah, the little horn thingy. Yeah, yeah. And all the fall vegetables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and we also have college football playoffs with Trojan fans are now actually paying attention to where are they going to end up in the playoff hunt, which. To me, year one of Lincoln Riley is sort of an insane concept to even think that we're talking about USC possibly 
making a playoff run, it's just hard to fathom that, you know, we could go from a four win, who cares about USC football season to this. I don't know if I'm 100% on the bandwagon of USC being a college football playoff team. I think in some respects, it probably would be better if they were on the outside looking in of that. You know, they win all their games, but they kind of end up being that team that doesn't make it. And maybe they have uh, a little bit of a chip on their shoulder going into next season. Uh, but then you also have the portal. The portal is opening back up here in the beginning of December, and you're already having some players jump in. Very interesting to see how that impacts the recruiting process for USC as they try to get their board settled up with the players that they're recruiting out of high school and the potential impact players that you could bring in from the transfer portal. So that, in addition, is going to be crazy. But like we talked about in last week's podcast, at least we're not in a college football coaching search because that really made things out of control, chaotic last year, just trying to keep up with everything. And that happened Thanksgiving weekend where Lincoln Riley was hired as the new USC football coach. So you could imagine insane it was trying to be on top of who are they going to actually recruit in the 2022 class? Who's, who are they bringing in from the Oklahoma committed class? Um, you know, transfers and everything that was going. So at least we have that off our plate this time this year. And just a producer's note, you are right, Gerard, it is called a cornucopia. And so I guess in the, large scheme of things keep that cornucopia out baby let's let's hold off until a very busy uh december let let that let that let that baby breathe a little bit before we get into that and you know let's just jump into the show before we do that we're going to talk about excuse me before we get into that you know we're just got to talk about a new commitment that came in uh from last week we got a big game out in the the desert a big high school game that is very pertinent to usc fans pinnacle versus highland we're going to talk about that little update on some potential official visitors or what were going to be official visitors this weekend. little update to the coaching carousel. You know, we got big game a, a week, nine college football scores, a big hefty USC versus Arizona recruiting angle. Got some Friday night games, got some big uh, week 10 college football. And we got a bunch of good listener questions. So, you know, not a ton to talk about, but somehow we'll, we'll stretch it into a four hour show, Gerard. But before we jump into all of that, just a quick shout out to the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits, Meredith Schlosser, one of the top real estate agents real estate agents in the nation, uh, 1.5% of all agents in the country. You can check her out at www.meredithschlosser.com. That's S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And you can follow her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. Now, Gerard, like I just mentioned. There was a commitment, commitment number 20 for USC's recruiting class, San Diego Lincoln three-star linebacker David Peavy, who was actually recently bumped up up to a four-star prospect like 24 hours before he made his commitment, chose the Trojans over Washington and Oregon. Another win for the Trojans over the Ducks. He's the number 33 edge prospect in the 24th Bevan Sports Rankings, a four-star prospect, as I said. Number 663 overall in the 24-7 sports composite. Number 60 edge in that composite rating. He is a six-foot-four, 230-pound backer. Draw, we, we already broke down some of his game last week, but it's official. He's on the board, made his commitment. He said it felt like home. Oregon did not feel like home. And he admitted 
that Oregon was, you know, his leader at one point, as we as we imagine that crystal ball was in for the Ducks early on. But he mentioned, you know, Lincoln Riley, that staff, they were relentless in recruiting him. And in the end, that made the difference. A chalk up another win for USC's big official visit weekend over the summer, the golden hour, if you will. Another win for that for that event. So Gerard, David Peavy, committed to the Trojans. People want to know. Can he play? He can play. He can definitely play. And watching USC this past weekend, they need more players like David Peavy. This was a really interesting recruitment. And I think, you know, to sum it up, Oregon sort of dropped the ball on him a bit. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, well, Oregon – you know, they were backing off on him and they cooled on him. I don't think that was necessarily true across the board. It's a recruitment that got really interesting over the summer. He takes his official visit to USC and he taken an unofficial visit to Oregon. And at that point, we heard he really likes USC. He had a really good time at USC, but he was one of those defensive recruits that was a little hesitant to put faith in the recruiting pitch that USC was going to turn things around quickly. I think he, along with a couple others, really wanted to see what USC was going to do on the field and whether all of the positivity and the optimism that the coaching staff had about turning this thing around and getting USC back to national relevance was really going to happen. And so he kind of slow played the process a bit There were, I think, two different occasions when we thought he might commit to Oregon. And he just put it off, and he just kept putting it off. And I think, in general, he just wanted to see how some of the teams were going to play. And by the time we get to August, we interview him after the Bishop Alamany game. And he was all Oregon. He was basically silently committed to Oregon at that point. Uh, That's the vibe we got. But subsequently, Oregon then has that opening day loss at Georgia where they get completely annihilated by Georgia. And I think that again, sort of put a little bit of hesitation in his step. And so he had Washington still recruiting him very hard and Washington at the beginning of the season in September was a very good football team. They look like perhaps maybe the best football team in the Pac-12. Well, he takes an official visit up to Washington September 17th. And that, again, I think, put some hesitation into whether he was going to turn around and pull the trigger with Oregon. And I think at that point, the Oregon coaching staff was kind of looking around like, well, why aren't you committed already? So Oregon starts to turn around their football season. And turnaround is not really the right word, but they have that really bad loss. They're able to beat by BYU, which turned out not to be the best win in the world. But at that point in time, BYU was a top 25 team. And they're able to get a couple other good games under their belt. And they start to turn things around and get a little bit more momentum on the recruiting trail and on the field. And so the push was there. Go ahead, commit, commit, commit. And David Peavy just sort of dragged his feet a little bit on it. And I think there were sort of questions being raised on both sides of the fence there, both with the Oregon coaching staff and with David Peavy. He schedules and is finally supposed to take his official visit to Oregon a couple of weeks ago for the UCLA game. But Oregon didn't have any official visits coming in. And I think those visits got canceled, but they still wanted to have a bunch of guys come up unofficially. And David Peavy sort of balked at that. I think he felt like, well, I was going to go up there officially. I don't know about going up there unofficially. I've already been there unofficially. 
And again, I think there was just a little bit of questions on both sides of the fence there. USC, through all of this, and this is coming straight from PV, really recruited him as a staff. And Lincoln Riley specifically has a very good relationship with David PV. He talked to David PV weekly. And we had heard before he was going to announce that he had a really good conversation with Lincoln Riley and his coaches and his mom. And they just talked about how important they felt David was to the grand scheme of things and them, you know, getting the defense back on track. And now you have, you know, that proof of concept, as Lincoln Riley called it earlier in the season, for recruits to be able to see what the defense looks like, you know, what the offense looks like, what the program looks like under Lincoln Riley. And I think David Peavy was much more comfortable with USC uh, at this point. And again, the relationships that he had with the coaching staff as a whole, uh, Roy Manning did a fantastic job. Roy Manning really got his foot in the door with David Peavy back when he was recruiting Jaleel Florence and Jaleel Tucker, both Lincoln uh, alums. And he came in sort of last minute because, you know, like we're talking about, I think the, you know, the week after Thanksgiving or first week of December, basically, is when uh, those coaches from the Oklahoma coaching staff came over and started recruiting for USC. That's when you had that interesting uh, text about Damani Jackson being recruited by Roy Manning and Roy Manning, Mm -hmm. everybody thought was still on the Oklahoma coaching staff. Well, Roy Manning was hitting the road and he had been previously recruiting Jaleel Florence and Jaleel Tucker because he was the quarterback's coach at OU. So he had a really good in-home visit with them and Jaleel Florence specifically almost commit to USC. He really liked Roy Manning, had a really good relationship with him, but Roy Manning wasn't going to be the cornerback's coach at USC. Dante Williams was, and Dante Williams really didn't recruit Jaleel Florence or Jaleel Tucker uh, when he was the interim coach or even when he was a cornerback coach when Clay Helton was the head coach at USC. So he didn't have that relationship with them. And I think if Roy Manning was actually the cornerback's coach, Jaleel Florence probably would have committed to USC. But at least at that point, Roy Manning was there at Lincoln, had a presence, you know, had the communication going and David Peavy saw that and he saw the relationship that Jill Florence had with them and liked him. And now Roy Manning is recruiting his position. He's recruiting an edge outside linebacker. And I think that was also a big deal. So this is one of those things where USC was just relentless. They stayed after it. You got to get a lot of credit for Lincoln Riley for a head coach to be personally involved with one of these top guys. I mean, this is one of those things that We've seen over the years where certain head coaches really can move the needle on the recruiting process. And that's something that's going to be very interesting as we get into in-home visits. I talked with a source at St. John Bosco, and I think I mentioned this in the podcast last week, but we were sort of talking about the celebrity status, uh, the the celebrity status of who Uh, Lincoln Riley of Lincoln Riley. Yes. Well, yeah, we talked about that and, and just sort of that pull that he might have that's been a little different on the recruiting trail when he actually gets in home and is able to, to give his pitch, you know, to give his speech as to listen, this is what we're doing at USC. This is what I'm about. This is what USC is going to be about culturally. This is what we're going to do for you as a family and being able to sit one-on-one with these families and these kids and what kind of clothes USC is going to have that they maybe didn't have the past few years. So it's going to be interesting. We really don't know how that's all going to play out. But this was one of those things that getting the backstory with David PV, you could see where, you know, Lincoln Riley actually impacted his recruitment. And, you know, just to think about as a USC fan, to just think about him walking into those in-home visits, 
with that Lincoln Riley swagger if this team has double digit wins. You know, they're most likely going to be nine and nine and one going to that UCLA game. Whatever happens after that, USC's looking very good for a double digit win season. But, you know, to walk in there with a bunch of results on the field with a shiny 10 and whatever, 11 and whatever record. And knowing that USC went four and eight last year, that's a that's a big, big uh, resume to walk into an in-home visit with, you know, you know, guys like Mateo. Help me out. Ungulale. They've got to win one of those two last games. I think if you lose to Notre Dame and you lose to UCLA, it's going to be much harder to be able to maybe close with some of those bigger prospects. But if you're able to get at least a split on those, I think USC is going to be in pretty good shape. You win both of them, and certainly I think you get into that sort of, you know, what's the ceiling here? We're not really sure. They're probably going to be right at five, maybe inside the top five at that point with the guys that they have on the board that they might be able to close with with that kind of momentum. But, again, even if they don't get those players and they don't close with Mateo Ungulale or some of these other guys, you still have to look at the bigger picture of where they were last year, where they are now, and just sort of the traction they have going forward and the potential that they have with a year under their belts uh, going forward. I think, you know, the defense will improve next year. I think that the defense is certainly, you know, taking some time to come around a little bit. But, you know, offensively, teams are going to start to zero in a little more on what they're doing. I think, you know, they're going to have some more tape on Caleb Williams. And we've seen this with past players, you know, that sophomore film, for a lot of the Pac-12 teams, this is like Caleb Williams coming in as a freshman because they just haven't seen him play before. But they'll be ready for him more next season. So the team as a whole has to be a little better. But you got to be very happy with the way the offensive line is playing, um, the way the run game is, even though they don't run the ball a lot. But I'm sure we'll get into that a little more when we talk about the recruiting angle coming away from that Arizona game. And I don't want to hit on this too much when it comes to PV because we did kind of talk about this. In our uh, previous episodes, you can go back and listen to that. But he is rated as an edge prospect, and he is sort of, you know, we talked about how that edge uh, terminology, that edge uh, uh, designator kind of covers a broad range of kind of players. And he joins Braylon Shelby in this class who, you know, six foot, six foot four and a half, pushing six foot five out of Texas. They are both edge players, and you're re- recruiting Mateo, who is also rated as an edge player. But let's say USC gets all three of those guys. They could all be on the field at different spots in this defense. You know, Mateo, more traditional hand-in-the-ground kind of DN prospect. Braylon, kind of looking as a guy who could play off the edge. But also, we've talked about his athleticism and his ability to play off the line of scrimmage as a linebacker, maybe side-by-side with Tackett Curtis, your other linebacker commit at that Mike spot. And then David Peavy, six foot four, two thirty, who seems like a perfect fit for that rush end spot that USC is trying to get more productivity out of. That's something we mentioned last week. Lincoln was on record of saying we need playmakers at that spot. You know, kind of like a uh, a, uh, a public statement for for kids maybe listening to that interview. Be like, hey, we need guys who can get to the football out that spot we need production out of that spot we're not really getting it right now it's too inconsistent so playing time up for grabs you know whatever may happen with Romello height and his injury and his recovery but still they need more bodies there because 
it got really light at that position this season and is really light right now. So, you know, just looking at it, three guys that could all end up signing, whether what happens with Mateo, but all three edge guys, all three that could play in very different spots in this defense. Yeah, the rankings are sort of almost like umbrella positions at certain points where you have multiple positions under one designation. So we talked about that with linebackers and edges, maybe the one where there's, you know, the most different types of bodies that are all ranked under that one edge rusher position. And so Mateo Ungalale certainly come in, be a five technique. You could slide him in have Braylon Shelby over at the five technique and then have a guy like David PV with the rush end. Or you probably are going to see, I think Shelby and PV compete at that rush end position. They both have, Similar qualities in that they can play off the ball more than any of the guys that USC has on the current roster. Certainly more than Solomon Bird, who's a bit more of a defensive lineman that's kind of quasi-hybrid. Nick Figueroa, again, a little more of a defensive lineman, 6'5", 275. That's when he came in to be a defensive lineman uh, out of uh, JUCO. And even Corey Foreman, to some extent, is a guy that, while athletic, is not necessarily the most comfortable playing off the line of scrimmage. Brantley Shelby, we've seen is very, very comfortable in space. I mean, for the size of player he is and the length, I I watched his film again, and I actually told Greg Biggins you should check out his film when we were talking about David Peavy and sort of where he would play in USC's defense and how he compared. He really wasn't that familiar with Braylon Shelby. Obviously, it's not his region, but I was watching that film again and just, man, he is is a guy that you could maybe pound the table for Five-star status. Like, you're, you're pushing for it, Gerard. He, he, that, that junior film is really, really good. He's doing some things that most players at that size just cannot do. And then you look at Peavy, who, who tends to play a little more at the line of scrimmage. He's very good against the run. I, I think that's the thing that kind of jumped off the film, at least his junior film, the most is the fact is he could really seal that edge. And he's, and he's really ready to put his shoulder into that lead blocker or whoever comes out to block to try to get uh, can, can break containment on those outside runs. And he's just not having any of it. And that's really good to see, that physicality at the point of contact. And so he's interesting. He's an interesting player. You know, he's about 235 himself, 6'4", uh, but he played safety as a freshman. And he kind of grew out of playing defensive back. So he does have a little bit of that pedigree in the secondary, so you think that he does have that athleticism where he can play off the line of scrimmage and look pretty fluid. So both those guys, you're going to be able to move around probably a little more. And we've seen USC use more zero blitzes where they've brought those defensive ends off the line of scrimmage and they played down the field. I mean, in one case, you had a really big play because you had Nick Figueroa trying to cover a guy that got way too far downfield. There's, there's no way that's the way the defense is drawn up. The safety probably blew the over-the-top coverage or whatever, but you've seen USC get a little more fancy with some of their drops, other defensive ends, but these two guys that uh, they have committed right now are both just much better players uh, from that standpoint. You can expect more from them athletically in space, and so that's exciting. That's well-needed, and I think it's going to be interesting to see you know, really where they sort of fill out and, and where they end up in the defense. Very exciting indeed, you know, seeing uh, Alex Grinch and this defensive staff sort of upgrading the talent for this defense, which, you know, has taken some lumps in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, you know how you fix that, Gerard? Recruiting, bringing the guys that you need, the guys that you want for your scheme. 
Anything else before we move on to a showdown in the desert that everyone seemed to be at uh, last Thursday? Thursday, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was Thursday. So we transitioned into talking about the defensive line and sort of that front seven and what USC needs into really talking about the two top players on the offensive line in the Western region. Yeah, that would be Pinnacle versus Highland, which if you were, you know, a USC fan and you wanted to go see a game between the highest highest uh, concentration of like USC targets and uh, prospects for 2023. I don't know, Gerard, I think pound for pound, it would be this game because you have offensive tackle commit Elijah page out there at pinnacle. You have his five-star teammate, Deuce Robinson, who USC is the leader for projected leader for, for, you know, what felt like since the summer. And then you have USC's other major offensive tackle uh, target Caleb Lomu out at Highland. So you have two future potentially two potential future offensive linemen teammates together in Lomu and Page, and then Deuce Robinson, perhaps one of the biggest recruited five stars on the board left for for USC. So pound for pound, Gerard, this might have been like the uh, at least of 2023 of the 2023 cycle. Pound for pound might have been you know the game you might have wanted to see. Certainly of the week. Uh, I mean, when you Certainly get Boswell and Modern Day together, it's probably a, a, a little a little heavier on the target list of guys that USC is recruiting. But last week, yeah, that was the game to be at. We had Trevor Booth there, Blair and Gulo uh, both covering the game. So we'll have some highlights uh, from the players, some ISO film from the players, as well as uh, some updates coming from them uh, at a recruiting uh, angle. But Watching the game, uh, myself, I was able to watch it on stream. Caleb Lamu played really well, uh, very, very well. They used him on some unbalanced sets. He constantly was getting off tackle, blowing guys off the ball, and able to make some great seams for the run game. And that's really how Highland kind of dominated Pinnacle. They kind of bullied them. You know, they really played well in the offensive line, and they got some big runs, and they were able to uh, just really sort of sit on the ball and run the football behind Caleb Lamu uh, quite a bit. Uh, Eliza Page had an okay game. It, it really was a game where you thought maybe Pinnacle would go to the run a little more. They've got a sophomore quarterback. Uh, but uh, he, he did play well, especially early in the game. You saw him getting downfield and moving guys off the line. Um, I think with Page, he's definitely one of those players. He's just so enormous. He's a guy that could play right tackle, could maybe put him inside as well. There's some uh mason murphy comparisons you kind of see from him a little bit where you see he's got such size but he's also very good at getting to the second level and you wonder if you know that's something where you may initially want to use him on the interior um seeing that you're going to lose a guy like andrew Voorhees. so we'll see how that goes but uh elijah page i think can play inside outside caleb lamu is definitely more of a left tackle outside guy he's going to have to put more weight on though he's not uh, as big as Page, so I don't know if he's going to be able to uh, contribute immediately. I think by the time he gets on campus, maybe he'll be just under 280. So we'll see how that shakes out in terms of you know, his freshman contributions. You know what he can do rotationally. I wouldn't expect either player to go out there and start as true freshman at the beginning of the season. I don't think any offensive line in the country you really want two offensive tackles starting at the beginning of the season. But it's one of those things that as the year goes on. Uh, can you get more contributions from them and they're going to be able to contribute? And so I think Lamu definitely played really well in the game. Um, it's interesting to see 
USC, they're doing well in Arizona. And that's something that we have not seen for many years. Uh, we've seen Texas come in, Ohio State come in, Notre Dame come in, a bunch of schools outside of even the Pac-12 conference out recruiting uh, USC in Arizona. And so this is the first year where USC really has a decent amount of presence in Arizona. And I think, you know, there was a question on the peristyle about Josh Henson and his recruiting and, and how strong of a recruiter he is. And I understand people are looking out of state at the big names, but truthfully, if you look traditionally at USC and what they did under Pete Carroll and those national championship level teams, USC really won with regional talent. They didn't go out of state to Florida and to the South to get a bunch of offensive linemen. It's not the same as defensive linemen. You can get very quality offensive linemen on the West Coast. It may take them a little longer in the system to be able to contribute because they're not coming out of the box at 315 pounds. But at the end of the day, you do have the opportunity just to regionally lock down some of the better offensive linemen and transition and have that become one of the better offensive lines nationally when you're talking about the college level. So, you know, they went in, I think, with Pete Carroll into Colorado. They plucked Jeff Byers out of Colorado. He was the number one center prospect in the nation, one of the very few five-star centers that we've seen uh, in the last 20 years. And he was a really dominant, dynamic player, probably one of the best uh, high school films I've seen of an offensive lineman uh, where he was just running around like he was a fullback, you know, 30 yards downfield lead blocking. They also got Butch Lewis, who came in originally as a defensive tackle, and then they moved him over to the offensive line, and he was also from Colorado. But really, that's it. They didn't go, you know, outside the region very much to Texas or any other, other states to recruit offensive linemen, and they were still able to put together a lot of really good offensive lines under Pat Rule. So I Can don't I ask think... you a question on this? Yeah, go ahead. And we were actually talking about this – off air and I was like, hold on, Gerard. This sounds like something that people would love to hear you talk about. So let's let's pin put a pin in it until about 30 minutes into this show. But just, you know, you're talking about the Pete Carroll era and that that time of recruiting, but just not maybe not devil's advocate, but just me as a uh, just me asking a question. Was the offensive line talent in Southern California, West Coast better than it is now? Were there just more dudes? No, I think that you, I mean, you're talking about finding, you know, 15 to maybe if you've got a heavy group of offensive linemen, 18 offensive linemen on your roster in a four-year cycle, right? So everybody gets caught up, you know, how many guys can you recruit per cycle and how many top players are available per cycle? I mean, you only need as many as 15 to 18 and you're going to want to redshirt guys. Now you have the porthole as well, which can help you supplement maybe a, a position, a guard position, or maybe if you need a right tackle, you do what they did this past year with Bobby Haskins. And I think the development on the other side of things for Josh Henson with a guy like Bobby Haskins is also going to help them recruit further transfers, which could be also very big. We've seen the struggles in USC trying to find tackles in the portal and then offensive tackles and anybody who could possibly play left tackle is going to be as hard to get out of the portal as a good defensive tackle. Those guys are not in there very long and it's hard to get them. There's not very many of them. So you do have to do a good balance of being able to get those guys at the high school level. 
with the possibility that you can grab a guy and cherry pick somebody out of the portal. But I think, you know, traditionally everybody's going to go back and say, well, you know, you had that year with Matt Khalil and Tyron Smith. Okay. Yeah. You had the two best offensive tackles uh, in the nation at the same time and the same cycle for USC that year, but that wasn't always true. And under Pete Carroll, I've said this, and I even said this to, to Pat rule at the time, you guys under recruit the line too much. You guys need, more offensive linemen, you're going after like two a cycle. And I understand the philosophy then from Pete was we don't want to grab too many interior offensive linemen because if they don't work out, there's nowhere else on the roster for them. Okay. You can't put them over in the defensive line. You, you can always sort of shift guys if they don't work out position to position at a lot of different positions. And we talked about this previously. You've got a wide receiver, just doesn't have the hands, maybe just doesn't play the part as a receiver, doesn't run his routes well enough, but he's athletic. So you go and you put him at defensive back, right? If you've got a, a, a safety and, and he's big enough and he's just not really good in coverage, well, you move him to linebacker and put some pounds on. There's always that ability to sort of shift players around, maybe over-recruit the defensive line, and you get a guy like Butch, Butch Lewis or maybe Alex Parsons was another guy that they brought in originally as a defensive lineman, and then they end up shifting them to offensive line and they become very good offensive linemen. So I understand philosophically – in doing that and maybe grabbing some extra defensive linemen. I don't have a problem with that, but I do think back then USC was just really sort of stingy on offensive line offers. And I think you got to bring in like three guys. If if you're bringing in one guy in a cycle, I think you kind of put yourself in a tough position depth wise. And it's not just depth wise in terms of the guys you're going to play on Saturday. It's depth wise practicing, you know, having scout team guys, having enough bodies there of scholarship players that in spring ball, you're not rotating seven guys, which is often what happened with Pete Carroll towards the end there, where it's just there were days where you're going, who's who's actually practicing in spring ball? you got these 15 days. I, I mean, you know, you want to be able to practice full speed. And if you just don't have the bodies up front, you don't have the bodies up front. It's going to impact how you practice. So I think it's good to grab, you know, maybe a couple extra guys and maybe some of these guys, they don't end up playing a whole lot on Saturdays, but I think there's still value there. But to answer your question again, I don't think it was so much more talented. I I think, you know, certainly you have to do your due diligence, evaluating and finding good players on the West coast. I think there's a little bit of chicken and an egg also where we have not seen maybe the teams on the West coast use those players that they've gotten that have been highly recruited and they've sort of busted out to some extent. And then the rankers start to get a little cold feet and gun shy about ranking guys as four stars uh, from the West Coast because all these guys, you know, they're not turning out in in college. But it's like, okay, are they not turning out in college because they ended up really being bust physically or what have you? Or are they just not getting the coaching? You know, is the player development on the West Coast not what it should be? And if you look at the Pac-12 over the past five, six years, the Clay Helton years, it's not been very good. You know, you had Mario Cristobal up there in Oregon as an offensive line coach, and then every other team really was pretty bad at player development at multiple positions outside of maybe quarterback and wide receiver. So I think that sort of goes hand-to-hand. And once you see if USC is able to get back to where USC was, then all of a sudden, you know, those three-star guys that Pete Carroll was recruiting – all of a sudden started becoming four-star guys when they became championship teams, you'll see the same thing maybe happen in the Lincoln-Riley era where some of these guys like Alani Noah 
who you look at and you go, man, this guy is very dominant on film. And he's a good 6'4", 330. I mean, he's playing for Grant, decent high school. That guy maybe is a four-star guy if USC offers him coming off a college football national championship or a couple playoff runs because there's more trust in the evaluations of the coaching staff because there's also more trust on the back end of development. The back end of development. What do you think? Could be a podcast name? The back end of development? The back end of development. (laughs) You're right. That's pretty ambiguous. But yeah, well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. But I know that was uh, something that was uh, a conversation on the P about Josh Henson being USC's best uh, assistant coach. And he's certainly doing his job when it comes to recruiting on the trail. You have to start, you know, to, to, and to follow up on, you know, that conversation even more. And I, and I answered it on the peristyle and, you know, we'll talk about it in that thread. I'm sure there'll be some replies and some questions further. You, you kind of have to start somewhere if you're USC. You've got three different offensive line coach coaches come through. All three of those offensive line coaches have had very different philosophies recruiting the offensive line and playing offensive line, different body types. When you look at Neil Callaway, he wanted guys that were just bigger, that could mic block and push people around. That's sort of where the offensive line was, and that's where he wanted it to be. Then you transition where you've got Tim Drevno there, who comes in first as a running backs coach, because Clay Helton really couldn't fire his dad's best friend. And so you've got this weird dynamic with Callaway and Drevno, both as offensive line coaches. So you finally do the inevitable and you fire Neil Calloway, who was not a bad recruiter. He got that really good 2016, 2017 class that we're seeing still pay dividends for USC. I mean, Andrew Voorhees is is still, you know, here and (laughs) one of the best players. And he was, I think, a three star in that class, maybe four star composite. He was. That is correct. That is correct. Hey, he almost got Sean Ryan, too. So Sean Ryan later on. And it was funny because they didn't get Sean Ryan when Drevno came in because Sean Ryan said Drevno recruited him too hard. And he liked Neil Calloway because he was more laid back. And they, Neil Calloway was one of those assistant coaches under Clay Helton that everybody kind of laughed and said, yeah, he's a guy that recruits for basically three months out of the year. And he would show up during in-home visits. He'd show up on the official visits and he had a, you know, kind of Southern personality sort of was a character and you know, a lot of people sort of liked him. You know, he, he was, he was likable from that sense, but he wasn't a guy that really pound the pavement to go get offensive line recruits. And at that point, you know, you look at USC when they have new Callaway and they had those good offensive line classes, they have momentum towards the end of the year. And despite maybe not recruiting really hard during the spring and really not recruiting at all during the summer because there were some kids that had not talked to Neil Calloway in like two or three months over the summer. He'd sort of kind of cruise in there at the end of the year for in-home visits. USC's already, you know, they're starting to win some games, go to Rose Bowl, they go to a Cotton Bowl. You're able to still close the deal on some of those offensive linemen. And, and again, you're asking me, you know, were the offensive line so much better during the Pete Carroll era? I mean, they got that offensive line class with Elijah Vera Tucker, with Andrew Voorhees. Uh, I think Austin Jackson might have been a part of that class as well, or maybe he was the class before, but they had uh, a really good group that year. Uh, I remember they got Jalil McKenzie as a blue shirt, which was a great pickup for him. That was a class that had quality and it had quantity and it really lasted USC. I mean, 
they didn't spread it out. I mean, they got Elijah Vera Tucker both as a good guard, and they were able to transition that and spin that into him being a left tackle, and they got a year out of that too. So, I mean, there was a lot really gained from that class. But when you transition into Tim Drevno, now you've got a different philosophy. Tim Drevno was much more detail-oriented. He was one of those Stanford Harbaugh disciples that wanted to outsmart you. He wanted to use more schematics with the offensive line. He wasn't concerned about the level of talent. He wasn't concerned about the athletes as much as he was concerned about guys understanding the philosophy and the scheme and the X's and the O's. It's interesting that he's at UCLA because he reminds me a little of Chip Kelly in that he really puts everything on the coaching and on the scheme and on the design. He's not a guy that's out there reaching to try to just get the best athletes. He feels confident in what he's going to coach up. So he's not really all that concerned about recruiting the top guys. So you had this point where USC was kind of lackadaisical in in terms of competing against top players. And they really didn't have a real presence in a lot of those conversations. But again, a guy that wants to run the ball and, and you're talking about tight fits. You're talking about two, three tight end sets. That's where he comes from as an offensive line coach. Well, then you bring in Graham Harrell as an off, as an offensive coordinator. And we said this at the time, that's not really a good combination. Tim Trevino was never, ever coached in a spread offense and Clay Helton, the other assistant coaches scoffed. Oh, it's no big deal. Tim Drevno, sure, no problem. He can do it. And Tim Drevno obviously is going to say, hey, yeah, I can do it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a good offensive line coach. He's not going to say, yeah, I really don't fit this scheme. But it became very, very obvious very early on that they were not in sync. You know, the offensive line and, and, and how they were coached and what Graham Harrell wanted to do, just opposite ends of the spectrum. So then Tim Drevno gets fired and you bring in Clay McGuire, who actually was a spread offensive line coach. And you could see that in his coaching approach, being, again, totally different than Tim Drevno, wider splits and just doing things differently and understanding, I think, the bigger picture of the RPO and the spread pass offense and how you want to approach it. He was more he was more successful in doing that. Um, they ran the ball much better with Clay McGuire. And Clay McGuire was actually a pretty decent recruiter. He had some really good connections in Texas. Remember, Devon Campbell really liked Clay McGuire, and they had a shot at him before Clay Helton gets fired. I mean, Devon Campbell actually took an unofficial visit to USC even after Clay Helton got fired. So that's a little bit of a nod to Clay McGuire. And Nito uh, Miyazulu was another guy that really liked uh, Clay McGuire. Might have, might have actually signed him if Clay McGuire sticks around, not really sure because Texas swooped in with the whole $50,000 pancake club thing. And that obviously played uh, a big part, but Clay McGuire was doing, you know, pretty good on the recruiting trail, but again, three different offensive line coaches, three completely different philosophies and like who you want to recruit and who you're looking at. So there was no cohesiveness over the past, you know, three to four years in offensive linemen. There's no pipeline into these are the type of guys we want, and these are the type of guys we're going to go after. So Josh Henson not only never recruiting the West Coast and never really being a, a territorial recruiter that has a bunch of connections regionally, also having to kind of recruit flat-footed at the beginning of the year because 
He's trying to go into places where the former system was completely all pass, never run blocked. I told you before, offensive linemen don't like that. They want to get off the line of scrimmage. They want to pancake somebody. They don't want to just sit back in their pass pro for 50 snaps a game. He's he's really ha- having to sort of hit the ground running, and I think he's done a fantastic job to this point. I mean, if they're able to get Caleb Lamu, they've got the best offensive line class uh, regionally for sure. And and at some point, you you have that, and you have that traction, and you are establishing that base. Then maybe you're able to have a little more success cherry-picking going across the country. I think that right now there's really not a whole lot more you can expect from Josh Henson. It's certainly – if they keep the class together as they have it, very, very good class. If they're able to get Caleb Lamu on top of it, yeah, you, you have to say that he's done actually a fantastic job. My one question after listening to that very long and detailed diatribe is, how do how would Neil Calloway have done recruiting in the NIL era? That would have not been fun for anybody. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like I said, Neil <laughs> Calloway had his angle. You, you know, he had... He was certain, what he was, and he didn't change it. Je ne sais quoi. You know, there, there was, you know, it's like Ed Ergeron on the West Coast. You, you might think Ed Ergeron, Southern guy, Southern – like he's not going to mix well with California kids and L.A. kids and big city types. But L.A. is different. They embrace differences. They, you know, a lot of people out here are really they, – they're, they're, it's endearing. You know, to, to have somebody that has that real sort of Southern way about them. And it's 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 intriguing. And so I, I think, you know, that was something that helped Neil Calloway quite a bit. And, and there was a lot of supplemental help, you know, from some of the support staff. I know with Elijah Vera Tucker, Gavin Morris got, has to get some credit for that. Um, and particularly, you know, keeping him at USC and getting him out of the port or getting him out of uh, leaving early. Uh, he was going to, you know, leave early during that, uh, that shortened season. Um, I think, you know, you got to give some credit to, to other people as well, but, um, he didn't do bad. You know, he wasn't a bad, despite again, being one of the guys that, uh, didn't really recruit the whole part of the year. And there was just times where it's like, yeah, I hadn't talked to Neil Calloway in like two months. It's like, really? Okay. That's interesting. Um, different story now with USC and, and certainly, you know, Josh Henson again, has his own view of what he's looking for, what he wants. He's going to get a feel for West Coast kids. They've got a guy like Tobias Raymond committed, who's, you know, 250, 265 pounds. You know, how can you develop that player within the system? It's different than when you're recruiting Texas or you're recruiting the South, where you're bringing in guys and you're, you're kind of having to cut some weight off of them, but they're already sort of ready to go. You know, they're, they're just – just built a little differently. But at the end of the day, you might actually get more out of a Tobias Raymond. I mean, if we're looking at the NFL draft and we're looking at the left tackles that are ending up in the first round, you're looking at a bunch of guys that out of high school were tight ends, were guys that were 250, 260. You know, the Chad Wheeler types that are playing multiple sports, they're not the six, five, 330 pound offensive linemen that sometimes are the guys that you see that are all five stars. So yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, he's got to get a feel for the the physical development and the speed of that and what they can do from a strength and conditioning standpoint, and then parlay that into, okay, so that's what I can do. That's what I can get here. Um, this is what I want now going further into the 2024, 2025 class. As we talked before, 
2024 class is stacked with a lot of really good interior offensive linemen. The challenge is going to be, you know, finding that guy that you can actually put at left tackle or right tackle. You know, is it going to be Brandon Baker? Are you going to have to go outside the region? Or is there a guy that you really like and he's just under the radar and he's only 250, 260 pounds? Again, we're going to see what happens with Tobias Raymond um, and some of the maybe the under uh, the, the guys that are on the roster now that are sort of been the smaller underweight guys, how much development can you get out of those guys? Andrew Millick, um, you know, Gino Quinones, some of these guys, Gino Quinones didn't even play offensive line in high school. He was a defensive lineman. So if you start to see success with some of these guys that are three-star guys that are, you know, really low rated and they're West coast guys, then there's going to be more confidence in going out there and finding guys on the West coast that just because they're not four-star, five-star guys, doesn't mean you're not going to be able to get contributors. And let's circle it all back to what we started this sort of conversation on, which is Pinnacle versus Highland. And we talked about the offensive lineman, Lomu Page. But as I mentioned, there is also big five-star Deuce Robinson. Uh, Just to kind of end on that note, uh, he did not have the best game because Pinnacle did not find the end zone. He did have a fumble, one of several that uh, Pinnacle had throughout the night. Pinnacle but, had six turnovers in that in that game, yeah. if I recall. Yeah, it was uh, not good. Not good. They're doing their best Wake Forest impression, who I believe had eight turnovers in their loss over the weekend, and apparently seven consecutively, which is just unfathomable. Unfathomable. But, Deuce, not a, a super great game for him, but USC fans, Georgia fans, everybody wants him on their team. MLB fans want them on our team. But the question is, does USC still have the lead for Mr. Robinson? Yeah, so a lot of talk about Georgia making a big push for him and some talk like Georgia now leads. I I don't want to step on Blair and Gula's toes because I'm I'm sure he's got an update coming. But I did talk to Blair a little bit about it. And like we said, Trevor was out there as well. Still seems like USC is in a pretty good position for him. You know, lead – Again, I don't want to you know, speak for Blair, and I think he's more plugged in to that recruitment. I think Georgia has definitely made up ground, and certainly when you look at the way they're playing and the way they're utilizing the tight end, there's a lot of feel like, okay, you would understand if he picked Georgia. You know, Defending national championship, they're using the tight end quite a bit and targeting the tight end quite a bit. USC uses the tight end position, but they just haven't targeted the tight ends very much in the passing game. So I think you have a lot of different recruitments that have come and gone over the past year or so. You know, Josh Connerly Jr., Francis Mamagoa, and you start looking at those boxes that the recruits themselves create, you know, and, and you start checking off, okay, this is what they're looking for in a particular school. And some of these recruitments just don't make sense. Basically you have to throw the NIL box out there and say, okay, there's the variable, there's the wild card. I guess it had something to do with that because everything else, sort of stacks up more for USC than it it does the school that they actually committed to. But that's not necessarily true with Deuce Robinson. I think everybody would see logically if he decided to commit to uh, Georgia or or even Texas or some of these other schools where they are using the tight end much more. Having said that, he has a really, really good relationship with the USC coaching staff. Another guy that talks a lot with Lincoln Riley specifically, I think that USC's angle is recruiting him for what they don't have at the tight end position. 
they are recruiting him for the absence of having a good receiving tight end and really having a good big body at wide receiver. We're seeing Kyle Ford show up a little bit now, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And when we talk about the Arizona state game, but really they don't have that Drake London, that David Osbury, uh, that, you know, Patrick Turner, Mike Williams type of player at the wide receiver position. So I think USC is trying to recruit for the absence of what they have while these other schools are recruiting for the blueprint that they already have in place and the players that they're getting the ball to. So it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. I have not heard anything from anybody that I trust that says, oh, my gosh, you know, Georgia's in the lead. He's going to Georgia. Uh, there's certainly not a lot of panic uh, from this side of the country in terms of uh, how USC stands in his recruitment. But, again, I'm sure Blair will have an update that goes a little further into it. Uh, but USC is doing very well with, with Deuce Robinson. And I think he's very comfortable again with the staff and you've got Elijah page going to USC. He's comfortable with a lot of the recruits as well. Malachi Nelson, Akai Lemon, uh, you know, Zachariah branch. who has been a really good recruiter for USC is constantly talking to Deuce Robinson. So from that standpoint, I think Deuce Robinson is still uh, very much a, a USC target that, you know, if, if they don't lead for him, they're, they're right there with every other school that's recruiting him. Well, there you have it. There you have it. The hurricane speaks. Now let's move on to another sort of small recruiting update. And that is official visitors. You know, this is a big sort of weekend in terms of activities. It being homecoming for USC versus California. Cal, obviously not very good. Three and four can't really score. Defense is okay, but should be a game where USC kind of puts up some big plays, maybe gets that defense uh, some confidence back against a very stagnant offense. But, you know, this would be a weekend to maybe host some people, especially with the homecoming festivities. Everything that's going on should be a good crowd. But as of right now, it does not appear that USC will bring anyone on officially, which is interesting because it seemed like USC three-star defensive end Defensive line commit Sam Green out of Baltimore was going to make a return trip out to Southern California, was going to bring some friends, you know, some some friends out there from that St. Francis National Powerhouse, some some intriguing names with him. But as of right now, it does not seem like he will be here officially, but possibly unofficially, Gerard. No, actually, it sounds like that group is probably going to come in later, maybe Notre Dame week. Uh, I think. Right now, the coaching staff really wants to focus. Uh, I don't think they felt good enough coming away from the Arizona game that they want to have a bunch of recruits in that they kind of have to entertain and they want to focus on Cal because the Cal game, and I don't want to put words into anybody's mouth here, uh, but I get the sense that the Cal game could be a little problematic for USC just in terms of how the game may play out. Cal has a good defense and their offense isn't very good, but it could be kind of an ugly game a little bit for USC where it just kind of goes back and forth and it might not be sort of the blowout win that Trojan fans want to see and, and would help probably recruiting. Certainly the Arizona game, I mean, I personally expected more from USC, even minus the, the starters out. I thought that they might be able to play a little better defensively against Arizona, maybe get some more turnovers or what have you. Um, but it's one of those games that you're kind of looking at and it is homecoming. And I think that originally there was that thought like, okay, yeah, we could maybe make the most of the festivities and have Sam green come in as a, as a commit. 
and he was going to bring with him a few of the underclassmen that are at St. Francis. Uh, I did talk to Idris Farouk and Blake Woodby, the 2025 uh, cornerback, and they said that they both plan on unofficially visiting USC still this season, but probably not this weekend. So I would think that it's going to happen maybe for Colorado or perhaps it happens for the Notre Dame game, but it doesn't look like it's going to be a big uh, recruiting weekend for USC, at least for guys out of state. We'll see as the week gets, uh, you know, goes on who they're able to bring in locally. I would think because St. John Bosco and modern day both uh, have bye weeks this week, you're going to try to get those guys on campus. You know, maybe it's the first week they're able to get uh, a bunch of uh, modern day and St. John Bosco guys on campus at the same time. It seems like those there's always like a other, every other weekend, it's either you know, modern day guys that are on campus or it's the St. John Bosco guys that are on campus um, and try to fight off, you know, Ohio state or, or whoever um, this weekend to, the, to, to get those kids. It seems like, you know, with collectives nowadays, you have a lot of kids taking quote unquote unofficial visits to these schools across the country. And uh, it's not like the olden days where, you know, you had to pay your way all the way and, and kids didn't take a lot of unofficial visits during the season. So we'll see, but uh, certainly, you know, you would want to lock in some of those local guys. You want to try to get Mateo Ungalele. You want to get some of those top players in the 2024 class to be at the game. Um, but I think everybody is all hands on deck when it comes to finishing off the season uh, strongly. They may feel like maybe Colorado, you know, there's, there's maybe a little more chance to kind of blow that team out and it's not necessarily uh, going to be uh, quite as competitive. Moving on to our last talking point before we jump into our well-deserved break, Gerard, that would be sort of this uh, topic we introduced last show, the college football coaching carousel. And we would have more as, as you know, the, the hirings come, come get closer to that, that time, you know, the early signing period, but another big domino fell, which is the Auburn job opening up. Uh, Brian Harson was let go earlier this week. And that was something I believe I mentioned that, you know, we fully expect that job to become open. So a big SEC, SEC job is up for grabs along with Wisconsin, Colorado, Arizona State, Nebraska, and Georgia Tech. The top power five, top power five jobs that are up for grabs. And Auburn, interesting enough, you know, our own Brandon Marcello reported that Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss is the number one target reportedly for the War Eagles administration and their new AD. So, Gerard, would you, as Lane Kiffin, leave Ole Miss for Auburn? No, I don't think so. Now, you know, we talk about NIL, and it bleeds into almost every conversation of recruiting, but I think that is potentially something that college coaches are going to look at. You know, what do they have in their war chest when it comes to recruiting and what promises are there that you're going to be able to recruit well uh, head-to-head against some of these teams, and particularly when you're in the SEC and you know that they all have collectives, they're all very aggressive in recruiting, not just retaining players, but recruiting players. Ole Miss has been able to do some things. Now, they got in trouble in the past for recruiting, but they have been able to recruit pretty well. And competitively, certainly they've been there with Auburn. And Auburn, you're always sort of in the shadow of Alabama. So I don't know if that's really an upward move for Lane Kiffin. Yeah, it feels um, sort of lateral-ish. I know, I think, I think Auburn obviously has a better 
I, I would say maybe pedigree, but you know he's done really well at Ole Miss, and just doesn't make sense to just go make that lateral move kind of deal. Yeah, I I just don't feel like it's enough of a move to uproot your family and everything that you sort of built at Ole Miss to this point because he hasn't been at Ole Miss very long. So you do sort of look at this. I I think maybe perhaps. It's a nice little contract bump for him at Ole Miss. He could get an extension out of it. Name that I saw pop up, which I sort of laughed, was Dan Landing. Um, and, you know, certainly <laughs> Oregon has had their issues holding on to some of their coaches. I do wonder, though, if the success of those coaches, Mario Cristobal and um, uh, Willie Taggart, doesn't sort of undercut uh anybody going after Dan Lanning just because obviously Mario Cristobal not a lot of success there at Miami this year and Willie Taggart was a complete bust at Florida State so I don't know that Auburn would be swooping in for a first-year coach I mean Dan Lanning has done well enough um didn't really do all that well when he played against Georgia um certainly with Dan Lanning I would say from his perspective looking at an Auburn job I mean if he feels like the players that he had at Oregon were just not nearly good enough to play against Georgia, and he has to sort of close the gap. He may feel going to Auburn and recruiting and going after those players and having more Southern players right on your doorstep would make him more competitive because, truth be told, Oregon is about as talented as they've been in a long time. I mean, Mario Cristobal did a very good job recruiting there, and to go out there and get absolutely hammered by Georgia and then have Kirby smart turn around and say, we just had better players. I mean, that takes a little wind out of your sails, Maybe if you're Dan landing, but I don't know, that seems a little presumptuous, a little early on. Um, I don't necessarily know what the buyout for landing would be. I think he's got a five or six year deal. I don't know if it's enough really if Auburn felt like that was his guy because Auburn did play around a little bit with the Mario Cristobal uh, talk, um, you know, a couple years ago. And that all, you know, didn't end up being anything. I think Crystal actually did get an extension out of all that talk, but it didn't end up going anywhere. And then he turned around and, and went to Miami. So it's interesting. There is a, a little bit of that, um, you know, that, that indirectly perhaps could impact USC, obviously assistant coaches and things, the new coach that'll slide in there. Um, but it is, you know, another uh, big job that's out there. So, you know, you've got Nebraska, you've got Auburn, and those are sort of the, the two, um, you know, they're not blue blood programs, obviously. Well, you could argue that Nebraska, not Nebraska, Nebraska, yeah, Nebraska I, I would say that you could say Nebraska's blue blood, even though they haven't had a lot of success uh, the past few decades. But those are the two biggest name, um, you know, that they, they, they could that could go after some of the bigger fish. You know, we're um, always looking at uh, the, the NFL coaches and you know, who's going to make that transition. And is it worth their while? I think a lot of guys that are in the NFL right now are not looking back because of NIL, because of how crazy recruiting is right now and the transfer portal and the fact that you don't have much time off. You know, you you are coaching and recruiting all year long. I mean, it's just gotten to that point. And you, that's where support staff becomes so important, just to kind of give some of the assistants some, some breaks, you know, during the season and, um, you know, at those points where there's not an actual contact period. You know, you just you're, – you're just grinding so much. So – um, I don't know if a lot of those guys in the NFL are, are really looking to make that move downward. 
And with that, let's get into our well-deserved break for the first half of the show. When we come back, we'll do some around college football scores. We'll get into Gerard's heavily anticipated USC-Arizona recruiting angle, some Friday night games coming up, the Week 10 schedule college football, and a uh, whole bunch of listener questions. How's that sound, Gerard? That sounds dandy. Dandy indeed. We'll be right back after this break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gerard, how you doing? It was fantastic. I was headbanging to that little intro, outro, uh, whatever, interlude uh, song that we have. I was actually doing the same thing. I was like playing the air drums like to that. So uh, hive mind, hive mind going on. And I'm actually a little bit disappointed that I forgot to mention at the top of this show that I'm very proud to say that this episode will have dropped on Dia de los Muertos, Gerard. Happy early Dia de, Dia de los Muertos, from one cilantro boy to the other. That's very fitting for this podcast. Gracias, gracias. Yes, uh, the Day of the Dead. Uh, coming away from Halloween, it's uh, still spooky season, kind of, sort of. You know, uh, We have to uh, get into uh, later November before we start getting into the real turkey talk. So we won't rehash our opening uh, conversation about holidays and uh, decorations <laughs> and how they overlap. But uh, <laughs> yeah. This uh, this podcast is going to drop on the Day of the Dead. Okay, well, week nine college football scores. There were some interesting ones that I just want to run through these before we jump into what should be a long talk about USC's recruiting angle. But Notre Dame showed some sort of life. Uh, upset Syracuse 41-24. Miami... Oh God! Just squeaked by and uh, beat U U UVA uh, fourteen to twelve. Georgia smashed on Florida forty two twenty. Oregon smashed on Cal California forty two twenty four. Tennessee just absolutely bludgeoned Kentucky and made a potential number one overall pick quarterback and Will Levis look like uh, a third string forty four to six over Kentucky and then Ole Miss. Lane, the lane train with the three-point win, 31-28 over Texas A&M. And the freaking Aggies continue to just burn. They continue to just burn. They keep continuing to just push the 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 patience of A&M boosters. Or will they write the check for $95 million to buy out Jimbo Fezzer? Just, just keeps getting worse, Gerard. What score jumped out to you? Probably the Notre Dame game. I think okay. Notre Dame showing signs of life. Interesting, you know, as we get closer to that game with USC rivalry game. Um, I think that uh, the better Notre Dame is, the bigger that game is, and the better it is for USC. We get to see where USC really is at the end of the season. I think there's still some question marks as to, you know, how much ground has this team really made up? You know, how much better are they? Uh, as we'll, we'll talk about with the Arizona game 
You know, there was some periods of time, I think, where USC's defense looked like uh, that four-win defense. Um, so, you know, we'll see if Notre Dame's able to beat Clemson this weekend. Um, they'll get back in that probably top 25, and that game will be that much bigger. Um, you know, watching the Oregon game, I saw some of that game uh, against Cal. You know, it was actually close early on. And, uh, you know, Cal's offense, just not a lot of consistency there. You know, um, they're trying to throw the ball downfield and just uh, not a very good downfield throwing team. They've got some decent receivers that actually made uh, some good plays for them, but uh, that's just not sort of what they do. They, they really need to run the ball. And Oregon, they, they stacked the line. Oregon was forcing them to pass the ball. And so uh, Oregon just had you know, a lot better athletes. And at the end of the day, I think Bo Nix running the ball really sort of opened things up for them. So we're going to have to see how USC approaches that game with Cal. Caleb Williams is going to be a willing runner. Um, you know, just kind of get upfield and take those yards when you can get them, move the chains, set yourself up for some good third downs. Don't put yourself in too many third and longs because Cal has got a decent defense. And uh, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how they do on the front end if USC really wants to run the ball because USC has been a good running team. And they've certainly been a good running team when they need to run the ball. And that was something that we talked about at the beginning of the season. So uh, that was an interesting game to watch. You know, it's kind of the, the the third or fourth time I've seen Oregon and uh, where they are now compared to where they were at the beginning of the season. And again, it's really all Bo Nix. I mean, that's really the major difference. Uh, him just not throwing as many interceptions um, as he was in the beginning of the season. Uh, Oregon also had seven McGee enter the uh, transfer portal or at least. That's the the talk that he's going to jump in the portal. He was almost going to do that at the beginning of the season. So he's a guy that transferred in and out of high schools and everything and ended up at Oregon. And actually, the talk was he wasn't even going to be academically eligible for Oregon. Um, so that's interesting. You know, that, it's a guy that was considered a, a, a big get for them and going to be a weapon. Um, but uh, they are able to get a couple transfers at the running back position that just played more and, and been pretty good for them. So. Um, he hasn't played a whole lot this season, and uh, you know, I guess he feels like he could go elsewhere and get that playing time. But those are the games that kind of stood out, certainly with AM, their their demise. I, I don't even know if I would call it demise. I mean, they're just basically the same team they were last year. I mean, it's not they weren't great last year. They beat Alabama and they they definitely created a lot of momentum out of that. I don't know if I've told this story before, but oh, I was talking, people are listening. Was, people turn up the volume. I was talking to a player parent. Uh, of the 2024 class and they went down to AM for the football camp and uh, they you know had to camp and everything and got their scholarship offer and they went up to the coaches offices to talk to the coaches and they went into Jimbo Fisher's office to wait for Jimbo Fisher and so they were there there was I, I don't know, like three or four different recruits there uh, that had just been offered scholarships and Jimbo Fisher walks in, and the first thing he says to everybody is, if you're not here to beat Alabama, get the F out of my office. <laughs> That's the first Damn. thing, according to this parrot, that he said. That was the first thing out of his mouth. And everybody was like, oh, wow, okay. And um, But that was, that was it, you know, and that kind of shows you the emphasis that Jimbo Fisher put on beating Alabama. The but shouldn't that be what he says, though? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's bravado there. There's, you know, something to say for that. Um, but then when you don't beat Alabama <laughs> and that's like, you know, court, sort of like the season for you, you know, what else are you doing? Um, you're not beating Ole Miss and you didn't beat, uh, you know, uh, Appalachian State. 
So, yeah, it's interesting to see, are they able to keep these guys happy with the whole NIL system? You know, how much retention can there be when guys aren't playing well and they're not developing and you're not winning? You know, is the money still enough to keep guys there? Because that's going to be different. That's going to be an interesting part of NIL. You know, is Mario Cristobal and Jimbo Fisher and these coaches that are just maybe not really good coaches and they're not going to win those big games are still able to accumulate enough talent and keep it there uh, through payment that they end up being, you know, teams that can win nine or 10 games just because they've totally out talented everybody. Uh, that's just a question that you have, you know, you eventually get a good enough quarterback and you get enough good defensive linemen. And it's just a matter of, you know, you're going to lose, you know, two or three games a season because of coaching, but you're going to win the rest of them because you just have so much talent. And, so that's that's something that we're just watching. It's sort of uh, evolving before us with the NIL era. So that's um, kind of an interesting thing when you look at where A&M is right now and the potential of if that's not going to keep those guys there on the roster, then the portal becomes kind uh, of crazy and everybody's going to jump in after all those five stars that they got uh, committed in the 2022 class. Sort of speaking with Miami Amaro Cristobal, a huge win for the – the recruits don't really care about what happens on the field. They flipped the Oklahoma linebacker commit, Caleb Spencer, and he was at that game where Duke just absolutely embarrassed Miami. So big win for that crowd of, like, kids don't really care what happens on the field. Girardi had to feel vindicated with that one. I mean, they got Kamadi McLean. Uh, yeah, that's true. I forgot. Yeah, Kamadi McLean. yeah. And there's people saying that they might actually get Desmond Ricks, who reclassified as the number one cornerback uh, recruit in the 2024 class. He's a five-star in the 2023 class as well. I mean, that's just, you know, that's that's interesting. You're speechless. You're speechless, Gerard. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to toss around gossip <laughs> and allegations, but it's like, holy cow. I mean, really? You guys really look like dog water on the field. <laughs> Namara Cristobal, we talked about last week, it's not like he's Nick Saban or somebody who's, you know, had a bunch of championships under his belt. He, he was definitely a touch and go there at Oregon. And there was a lot of criticism about him as a game day coach, you know, and just, they, they were not, um, they were not necessarily dominant in the PAC 12 and the PAC 12 was terrible. So you kind of wonder, you know, Again, you're going to get more talent at Miami. So is it just going to be one of those things where you have so much talent that you can actually beat all these teams that you're having trouble beating now and you just lose a Clemson every year? Or you just, you know, you lose a couple games because of coaching. Even even the most talented teams will drop games to teams that they have no business dropping games to. I mean, you can look at Texas A&M versus Appalachian State. You can look at Notre Dame versus Marshall. You know, you're going to lose some of those games just because, the talent is thinking, you know, who are these guys? Like we could roll our helmets out there and we could beat them easily. I mean, Pete Carroll had had issues with Oregon State and, and certain teams where you could just see where the talent felt there was no threat there and guys play flat. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're in a fourth quarter game. And it's like, you know, these guys that we're playing are playing way above our head. They're hungry and they want it more. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to roll out, you know, in the next few years. We talked about that last week. You know, what's the grace period for Mario Cristobal at Miami? You know, what's the honeymoon period? Yeah, there, there's a couple of years, but I, I felt as though there's there's just like a certain amount of losses that all of a sudden you are going to lose guys. No matter what, 
whether it's the first year or second year or sixth year, you are going to lose certain guys because they just are turned off by what's happening on the field and the lack of player development that you're seeing with guys uh, that are only on a roster. And certainly we've seen with USC some good player development in areas, and that's something that they can hang their hat on. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the NIL era, in the collective era, when, uh, you know, you can throw money at kids, maybe, you know, that 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 overcomes things. I, I don't know. We're, we're literally watching this and seeing how it plays out right now. Living in the golden age of NIL, or at least the Wow Wow West. So with that, yeah, you know, this is not the golden age. I think this would be called. The sorry, I'm, I'm thinking of. I was, I was thinking of golden hour. I knew. I know. I know. That's why I thought you were going to go where. Yeah. You were say the golden. The golden hour, hour of uh, NIL. Let's call. It, let's call it that. Let's call it this, that. This is. This is. This. You know. The. The. The era of the Big Bang, where you know the the gases and everything were just starting <laughs> to become uh, galaxies and what have you. It's just completely unsettled, and you know we we just have to kind of see. From the regulation standpoint, I think is where we're all waiting to see how that goes. Because if the NCAA just throws their hands up and is basically like, well, we really can't do anything. We can't audit these private entities, these shell companies that collectives have created to pay kids. Um, There's obviously not a lot of auditing that can go on when you've got collectives involved with high school kids because the high schools themselves are not auditing anything. At the very most, all the colleges can do from a compliance standpoint is say, okay, before you got on campus, are there any deals that are still ongoing? Are you in any contracts that we need to know about? And then it's a matter of, you know, are the kids open? Are the collectives open? Are people open to being transparent in their books? And if they're not, then they're not. And the the schools are going to say, well, Hey, how are we supposed to know? Well, you're supposed to know because this is a, a group that's being run by your boosters. And then it's like, prove it. Because it's a shell company, you know? So, I mean, I, I understand how this is all kind of working right now and how it could continue to work and why there's so many schools that are aggressive because they just feel like the NCAA cannot prosecute and they cannot really investigate very much in the private sector. You know, they do not have subpoena power. And so it's really they have to go through the colleges to be able to do this. And the colleges can really just plead ignorance on that side of things. Um, if the boosters are doing a good enough job kind of keeping their distance away from uh, these companies that are, you know, making these appearances and, okay, yeah, here's $50,000 to do some autographs, here's whatever. And and whether that's, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously suspicious. You can say, well, you know, $50,000 to sit there for an hour and, and do some autographs. Like that's, that's a lot, but who's to say that, you know, that recruit is is or is not worth it. You know, you have to look at it from the standpoint of if this was a semi-celebrity, if this was, you know, Brad Pitt, if this was Angelina Jolie, if this was some influencer from YouTube, you know, what's their day chart? You know, that's the, you're going to get into that as the NCAA, you're going to try to, you know, go after people for that, you know, saying, okay, this is not, this is not uh, market value. You guys are overpaying this kid just because you want him to go to this particular school. A- a- again, the enforcement is what a lot of these schools feel like the NCAA has no teeth. And so they're just going all in on it. And that's why you're seeing certain schools and the names keep coming up. I mean, there's just, you know, there's a group of schools out there. And I think Michael Caspino, the lawyer, the NIL lawyer, quote unquote, kind of told on people a little bit with his tweets, which I haven't seen too many tweets from him since uh, about the ones that were really going after it hard 
with um, the NIL process and the collective process. And he, he mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Miami and he mentioned Tennessee and Oregon and Texas. And I think Louisville might've been in there too. And so it's just one of those things that, you know, the schools that are being conservative and, and, and being safe than sorry, you know, they might end up being, uh, you know, sort of on the outside looking in, at least initially. Um, but eventually, you know, if this is the way it's going to be kind of a free for all, if you will, um, then, you know, the regulation doesn't come and everybody's basically got to play by the same rules. And uh, the NCAA, from that standpoint, just doesn't have any real they don't have any oversight to the NIL process, quite frankly. Well, we've talked a lot about recruiting of other schools, Miami mainly. Let's get into the nitty gritty of USC's recruiting angle, Gerard, for Arizona. I was at this game and I was thinking to myself throughout the game, mainly because so many starters were out for USC and contributors were out. I was thinking Gerard's going to have a field day with this recruiting angle. There's a lot of you know, people that are going to have to step up. But there was also a lot of negatives for this game, and I'm sure you had a lot to write about with your weekly recruiting angle, which he puts up every Sunday, so you should check those out. But, Gerard, if you're ready, I'd like to start with the negatives of this one. Oh, the negatives. All right. Yeah, bad I'm switching news it up. I'm switching it up. <laughs> what do you want? The good news is bad news. Let's take the bad news first. Um, I think certainly USC wasn't dominant in this win, and even with those players out, you felt like – this was a game that they were going to be able to just kind of physically be able to push Arizona around. Arizona has an awful defense. Arizona is not a very good football team. And so a lot of people want to say, well, you know, you have Jordan Addison out, you have Mario Williams out, you've got Eric Gentry out, you know, those guys are good for some scores and some turnovers. And I don't disagree with that, but I think if USC is a top 10 team, you're still able to go into Arizona and guys are able to step up and you're able to beat them by more than two touchdowns. That's that's my feeling, and I think that's where the coaching staff's mindset was and felt like they could do that. Arizona, before the game, I said, plays a lot like Washington State. They're a momentum team. They're a team that tries to make some big plays, and they can kind of get rolling after a big play, and that's what they did time and time again. And, and they really they got that done because the pass rush was not very consistent for USC. USC was active in their front seven, but, you know, using Tuli, Tui, Pelotu off the line of scrimmage, it was cool. It was interesting. And we can talk about that sort of in the positives of that game, but negatively it showed where USC was very undisciplined in their pass rush. And they lacked that ability from a personnel standpoint. And maybe they were in some bad situations here and there schematically as well where you just could not get after Jaden Delora. And in those plays, there were not only plays that you missed out on being able to sack the quarterback and get a negative play, but they in turn turned around, and most of them were huge conversions or huge yardage plays for Arizona. So it really worked against you. Uh, it compounded things. It was like you not only missed that tackle, uh, took a bad angle. We saw some missed tackles. We just saw – some players just completely whiffing, um, trying to go after him. Personnel standpoint, I think the guys that USC have right now are not great at bending off the line, uh, meaning if you've got your pass rushers that are getting containment, a lot of times what you see happen, they get upfield, they make one move, and they cannot bend inside to be able to collapse that pocket. They sort of go around the quarterback, and they were letting uh, Jaden Delores step up and then move off tackle and just run 
for, you know, 20, 30 yards a game. So the front seven, it sort of underlines some of the issues that the team has now. And I think it also foreshadows what a lot of Trojan fans fear about the defense going forward. Is this a defense that's going to be able to be physical and consistent up front? Are they going to be consistent with their pass rush, but also are they going to be physical and stop the run? And we've seen the run game is a mixed bag. You know, in Arizona game, it was the same where you had some runs where Arizona gashed them. And I think Arizona ended up having like six yards a carry. Now that obviously is uh, supplemented by Jaden Delore running for big yards. But there were some runs that, you know, Arizona had like on a first down and you just, you, you know, they get nine yards and you're like, that's that's not acceptable. You can't allow that type of run on a first down. So they got to get better, you know, and we talked about it at the, the top of the podcast, two guys that they've got committed that can really help in that area, uh, Braylon Shelby and David Peavy, two guys that are athletic enough to get upfield fast and put the offensive tackles on their heels, but also bend and agile enough that once they get into that point where they have the quarterback in their sights, that they don't have to lunge after the quarterback and they don't have to make those type of plays. And you saw where USC, a lot of defenders leaving their feet to try to tackle Jaden Delora. And look, Arizona made some really good plays, certainly on the back end. I think that's where they're better than Washington State. They have better receivers. And I think, you know, from a good news standpoint, USC was pretty competitive on those plays. You know, I think the secondary played decent enough. There was some plays that Arizona wide receivers just made really good catches. So, you know, it's not all bad, but certainly got to see a lot more consistency from the front seven. And, you know, the, the question is going to be how well can you recruit in that front seven? We know the linebacker position, it needs better players and they're going to get some better players. So that's being handled. But inside, you know, what do they have on the interior? Really not a whole lot. You know, you've got some guys there that, you know, were like former linebackers like Stanley Tafu, but you need to get better, and that's going to be the question going forward. USC, I think, also on the other side of the ball, very stubborn <laughs> in running the ball. You know, that's been kind of an interesting thing to watch. And, you know, looking forward, we talked about this a little bit in the angle, they have an opportunity to be a very good run team mm-hmm. in 2024 uh, with looking at the interior linemen that they're going to be able to possibly sign in the 2024 class, looking at the offensive line class that they may get in the 2023 cycle, they could really interject some good talent and just a lot more size, a lot more power and strength in the interior, a bit more consistency from that standpoint. And certainly the system will have been established at that point. And you're going to have two really good running backs coming in. You know, Quentin Joyner and Amarian Peterson are both good physical running backs. It's a bit of a downhill run game that you could have from a personnel standpoint. The question is going to be, is Lincoln Riley going to embrace that identity? Because even now with the offensive line that they have, which is, you know, talent wise, not the best offensive line that USC's had in the past few, few years. I think they're doing more with less. They're so reluctant to run the ball consistently. And when they do run the ball, they are successful. And we saw that in the Arizona game. They didn't run the ball three times in a row. They really, I don't know if they ran the ball twice uh, by design in a row until the late third quarter. There was about just under two minutes left in the third quarter. And they give Travis Dye the ball three times in a row. And he runs for nine yards, eight yards, and 12 yards. And then they put in Austin Jones, who we've not seen very often here in the past few games. And he runs for 15 yards up the middle. And it was very clear. You could have really been running the ball a lot more 
all game long and been more balanced, but they kind of got caught up in this passing uh, seven on seven game with Arizona because Arizona wants to throw the ball up in the air. You know, they're not really a run team. It just seemed like, okay, you can throw the ball like that. Well, we can throw the ball like that. Now, the good news is that you get a little more valuation on what you have behind Jordan Addison, Mario Williams, and your frontline receivers. So you do get to see what Kyle Ford is able to do. You do get to see what Tajon Washington can do. Although Tajon Washington, uh, Taj Washington, excuse me, plays a lot uh, already. So you sort of have an idea that he's a very good player and he's one of your guys that behind Mario Williams and Jordan Addison can get vertical. So he is a bit of a vertical threat, but you did get to see him make some tough catches in this game, which I think is very big. Some, some contested catches in this game. Kyron Hudson continues to play well. And Michael Jackson has come on the last two games. And but a guy, just he just catches the balls that are there for him. You know, those, those underneath catches, uh, he had a big 53-yard run. That's good to see, you know. What you didn't see maybe was with Jordan Addison and Mario Williams out, a lack of being able to stretch the field a little bit. So, And I mentioned that it just team. seemed like USC's deep, deep game just wasn't in sync as Caleb had been with Mario and uh, Jordan Addison. Just they didn't they didn't seem to have that kind of timing down when he was looking for for guys like Taj or or uh, Brennan Rice down the field. That was just kind of my observation. He's obviously most comfortable throwing deep shots to Mario and Jordan Addison. Yeah. And I think comfort and trust is a big thing for Caleb Williams in terms of where he's throwing the ball. Remember, this is a bit of an RPO offense, so we could talk about Lincoln Riley and his offense and the play design and and the playbook, but the play call ultimately has an auxiliary play caller out there on the field in Caleb Williams. And if he decides from the front he wants to pass the ball, and this has, again, sort of been the frustrating thing, I think, for Trojan fans in general, is that they've gone to the pass and they've been successful. So this is the thing that makes it a little harder to argue against. They've, they've had some success even when the opposing defense is dropping eight. But there's been so many times where you've got five, six guys in the box and you're going, just run the ball, man. It's, it's third and five. You can run the ball third and five, third and six against the five-man block. Like, you can do it. <laughs> it's not the way you're running the football, you can do it. And so that's also a little bit of a question is in terms of just trust. And, you know, we get into – Another negative, and we're sort of kind of jumping back and forth here on negatives and positives, but tight end position. And, you know, is the tight end utilization really more uh, an issue of Lincoln Riley's offense, or is it more of that's just not where Caleb Williams is looking to throw the football? And that might be part of it. You know, it might be part of I'm throwing the ball to Jordan Addison. I trust Jordan Addison. I'm throwing the ball to Mario Williams. I trust Mario Williams. I'm throwing the ball to the outside because that's just the throw that I want to make. And it's not necessarily about whether the tight end position is open or not. So I think from that standpoint, the targeting of the tight end position, it might be even just Caleb Williams. And and even in this Arizona game, we see the run game just explode sort of in the fourth quarter, right? They just, it's like, wow, that that was, you know, kind of there the whole game. And, and Arizona, even on some of those, uh, some of those down in distances where you would think they would have, you know, seven, eight guys in the box, they'll put six in the box and USC being able to gash them. There were some times early in the game where Caleb Williams held the ball and ran and really made it tougher on himself. And this is where you saw a positive in Mason Murphy. 
Mason Murphy at right tackle was sealing off that right side. And there were a couple plays where they played action and they didn't hand the ball off. And again, it's an RPO. So I don't know if it's, you know, so much to call in the huddle or at the, at the line, or it's just what Caleb Williams is seeing, but Travis Dye would have still been running. I mean, Mason Murphy did a really good job run blocking on several occasions where they actually didn't run the ball to that side. But you could see, oh, man, he he got the edge there and he was going to keep that uh, from being a a play where any of those defenders are going to be able to have an angle. And uh, Travis Dye was going to be able to get to the outside. So Mason Murphy, who we saw at the beginning of the season, he got thrown in there because Bobby Haskins got hurt. Didn't look great. Looked a little, oh, my gosh, you know, I didn't know I was going to be in the game. Uh, jumped off sides a couple times. And now you see him as a starter. He's prepared. You know he's, he's going in. Josh Henson, I'm sure, has coached him up a lot during the week, during the bye week. Hey, listen, we're going to need you at some point. We need you to get acclimated and have some composure. You've been here. You've got those reps now. You know what it's like. And, again, Arizona, not a great team, not a great defense, so we don't want to make too much of it. But it was really good to see Mason Murphy come in there and actually have some plays where he looked pretty dominant, especially running ball. Now, I think in the future, is he going to be a right tackle? Maybe. Maybe he could play right tackle. But I think you could still bump him inside and have a very talented, uh, potential dominant player, a guy like Andrew Voorhees, playing for you. And so that's good to see. It's good to see from the standpoint of Mason Murphy stepping up. And it's really good to see from a recruiting standpoint the development of that player and what USC is doing with guys who just weren't playing and being able to mix and match on the offensive line because this is something that you're going to have to do. You want to make championship runs, you're going to have guys hurt, you're going to have to mix and match your offensive lines, you're going to have to have guys play more than one positions, and you still want to see some success. So I think the offensive line actually played one of its better games that we've seen this season. Even though overall I think the performance was a little eh, I think the offensive line just as a position, they gave – Caleb Williams a lot of time he didn't have to scramble a whole lot you know he's going to move outside the pocket um, but he really wasn't pressured nearly as much as he's been in the past and that's with you know a new right tackle and some shifting along the offensive line so I think the offensive line played well I think Mason Murphy played well I think that's something that you definitely uh, want to you know put out from a, a real standpoint to your offensive line uh, recruits and say, look at, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what we're becoming. And I'm telling you right now, the run game is, is first and foremost in that, you know, it's great to see Caleb Williams standing back there for nine seconds. We saw that even in the Utah game. I mean, mm-hmm. Kyle, uh, Kyle Whittingham was, was livid on the sideline in that first, uh, that first drive, that first couple of drives at his defense, because they're getting him 10 seconds to pass the ball. And we've seen some of that. I mean, we've seen, him hold that ball quite a bit maybe for too long and that's something that you know you just did not see in years past at USC I understand that Caleb Williams is able to get away from some plays he's 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 definitely gotten away from a bunch of sacks and negative plays for sure and that's why you know again you recruit a mobile quarterback but at the same time there's been some just some 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 downs where I mean Caleb's been back there so so long you know you know that opposing Coaching staff is just yelling for a hold or something, and they haven't got it. You know, this has been an offensive line that hasn't had a lot of holding calls. Um, so that whole development process and sort of looking for, you know, the coaching, you know, where is the improvement actually coming? I think the offensive line at this point in time in the season is is definitely been a highlight. We're going to see what happens here as we get into the Notre Dame game where you got a bigger team, more physical, 
you know, how are they able to run the ball against Notre Dame? Um, and again, even Cal, I think Cal is a good uh, opportunity, but you know, is it the opportunity that Lincoln Riley takes or Caleb Williams take? Do they, you know, try to be a little more balanced? Um, I think they can be, but it's a matter of, you know, whether they want to be. Um, and then finally, I think on the back end of the defense, defense didn't play well in the game, but one highlight was definitely Makai Blackman, I think, who's shown up those past few games. A guy that I really wasn't high on. I'll be totally upfront. I just didn't think much of that transfer. I thought he was an okay player for really bad defense. Christian Gonzalez, I thought, was the best player on that defense and certainly the, the guy that USC missed out on. He went to Oregon. Tom McKay Blackman was okay, potentially could be jumped by Jacoby Covington or maybe a Damani Jackson or someone else down the line. But he has stepped up and he has been really good. And that's a notch on Dante Williams' belt. When he goes out there recruiting, you know, is he is he just going to get Roderick Pleasant? Are they just going to focus on that? Or is he out there quietly trying to work some other, you know, some other six-foot, maybe bigger cornerbacks as well? We know that Dante does not sleep when it comes to recruiting. And I would be surprised if it was just Roderick Pleasant that they're trying to bring in for an official visit for uh, the Notre Dame game. And shout out to you for acknowledging that you weren't that high on Makai Blackman, but coming back and saying, hey, guy's playing really, really well. I was high on Makai Blackman, but I didn't know he'd be playing this well. And I thought he was going to be huge just for them not having a true kind of number one uh, cornerback, which they desperately needed. And Blackman has stepped up uh, amazingly for that spot and been playing really, really well. All Pac-12 caliber for sure. And also, when you were talking about the line, just wanted to say shout out to Jonah Monheim, who kicked inside to that right guard spot and played really well, too. I believe Lincoln Riley said he was their highest graded offensive lineman. I believe they said 95. And that guard spot is actually what the initial evaluation for Monheim out of high school. That's where we thought he was best suited to play that interior role, not necessarily an offensive tackle spot. And, you know, props to him. He's been doing really well at the right tackle spot this year. He's definitely taken a step, but to see him go and kick inside and play really, really well, you know, kind of validates what we thought where he could also be a really, really good guard. And I know a lot of that, his rating or his ranking not being as high as, you know, maybe we thought this guy's consensus four star ability was that his arms were considered kind of too short to be kind of in that elite tackle range, but and more suited to be an interior guy. But he played, I thought he played really, really well um, stepping in for Justin Dietrich moving over to left guard. So shuffling worked out really well for them uh, on the offensive line. So yeah, Gerard, a lot of good points you've made as always. Yeah, I think, uh, no, I, mean, I don't have a, a monopoly on wisdom. You know, I mean, I'm definitely wrong. On certain guys and what have you. And yeah, I think, you know, Blackman definitely has played quite a bit better than I thought, you know, just in terms of ceiling and, and you know, the ball skills. And he's been there. He's gotten a couple of pass interference calls that were kind of iffy. But um, I mean, he's in that back pocket of the receiver most of the time and playing a lot of man. And so he's been very good from that standpoint. And to further your point off the line and with Monheim, we really liked Monheim a lot. Like his uh-huh. film was really, really good out of high school. I think more of, his ranking was dictated by the fact that, you know, again, this is a little bit of a sort of cyclical thing. The players that have come out of those areas, that Ventura area, there's just been a lot of busts. Been a lot of guys at Oaks Christian, been a lot of guys in Ventura, and guys even at Moore Park 
that have gone on that were four-star guys that just did nothing in college. And I think it impacted and affected not only Jonah Monheim, but it also impacted uh, Drake London because obviously that was a guy that we were pounding the table for too. So I understand how it works sometimes. You, you just sort of look at it and you go, wow, this guy looks good. But you know what? We had a couple other guys come through the same high school that looked good and they didn't do anything. But uh, certainly Monheim, his senior film was amazing. And him, you know, kicking inside, again, it just gives you – it just gives you so much more versatility and ability as a offense and offensive line coach when you've got guys that can play multiple positions because it's just it's going to have to happen. And again, I don't know that Mason Murphy not might not be able to play inside at some point. I think you know some of it will also have to do with uh, what they look like coming out of the 2023 recruiting cycle, how those guys play, and then you know what you do in the portal. If you keep him at right tackle or you decide, hey, you know what, we can get that talent on the interior, we can get an even better guy on the end. But nevertheless, I think, um, yeah, some good things from the offensive line. And, you know, at the end of the day, one of the huge stats that USC still remains number one in the country for is turnover margin, and which is pretty incredible mm-hmm. considering the amount of passes that this team has and, and the amount they put the ball in the air, you know, with a team that you would think would be conservative run the ball a bunch, have a good defense, you have a high turnover margin. But this is a team that really throws the ball quite a bit. And kudos to, to Caleb Williams for you know one interception this year. I mean, it could be 40 touchdowns and one interception. That's pretty insane, man. Those are like – you don't even see those numbers very much in high school. So, you know, he's, he's, he's really – he's been holding that ball a lot, you know, and not taking maybe as many chances as he could. Um you know, there's there's all kinds of little nitpicks that you can make, and we have to. We're analysts. That's what we're we're paid to do is is look really deep into all this stuff. Um, but that turnover margin is uh, pretty insane considering how USC plays. Absolutely. Anything else you want to hit on with this recruiting angle? No, I think uh, we covered it. You know, we're going to see how they play against Cal again. Cal could be could be an ugly game. You know, you just never know. Cal's got a, a decent defense. They've got a defense that can actually. Uh, stop some people and and do some things. Um, we're just going to have to see how that plays against USC's offense. If USC's offense is able to get ahead, if they're able, this is one of those games where possessions are going to be crucial, and it can it can be feast or famine. It's you know we've seen these Cal teams before in the past, even going back to when um, uh, uh, Jeff Tedford was there, and uh, yeah, Clancy Pendergast <laughs> playing against the Chip Kelly. Oregon teams and and holding them down and just being able to sort of frustrate them. If USC at home is able to get possessions, you know, they're scoring their first possession and they're able to get uh, Cal to get maybe a three and out early in the game. They get up on Cal early. That makes it a very difficult game for Cal. That's where you can, you can really put the hurt on Cal because they're not a team built to be able to come back. They're not a team that's a, a momentum team that can get some big plays on the back end with their receivers. And, and do just a bunch of stuff. They they really are sort of more of a methodical team offensively. The other thing that Kyle doesn't have is, is a mobile quarterback. So if they've got Plummer in there, this will be a much easier uh, offensive backfield to rush against. And, and in terms of how they play offensively, running the ball, I think it will be a little better for USC. I think they match up a little better if, you know, they, they have their guys. And they're obviously, if it's one of those games where, you know, all of a sudden, if Chuli's not playing and this guy's not playing, that guy's not playing, I mean, that always kind of throws a wrench into your predictions and how the game's going to go. I mean, that, you know, kind of hurt the, 
uh, the, the, the folks in Vegas with, I think it was a 15 and a half uh, spread against Arizona. And it looked like it was going to be a 15 and a half point spread. And USC had them down 31, 16. And the off uh, the defense just decided, oh, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to get to let a couple series, take a couple series off. And um, all of a sudden the game got close again. So Cal's not really that team. You know, I think if you can get, you know, 30, you get 31, 16 on Cal, uh, it's, it's probably going to be lights out for them just because they just don't pass the ball that well. And there you have it. Now, Gerard, we have a bunch of questions to get through to end off this show. So could you kindly run me through the Friday night high school football schedule and then we'll get into the week uh, 10 high school or excuse me, college football schedule? That means you have to know the triumphs and defeats, the epic highs and lows of high school football, but you will. You will, Gerard. You will. Yeah, we're going to have Oaks Christian at Rancho Cucamonga. Probably one of the better matchups in the first round of the CI playoffs. Going to have a bunch of buys. So, modern day, St. John Bosco. Some of the better teams are not going to be playing this week. But Oaks Christian at Rancho Cucamonga going to be really good. You've got Christian Pierce there. The still three-star. He's still three-star, even though I think he's a four-star. Safety that's committed to USC. And uh, Oaks Christian is always a good team. Uh, Johnny Thompson. Out there, uh, a former USC commit um, is going to be out there as a running back. Uh, it's going to be a, a pretty good game. You don't see Oaks Christian out in the IE very often, so that will be interesting. Norco, an IE team, going out to play Sarah. Norco, good football team, physical football team. going to be interesting to see what they do, do against Sarah. Sarah's got you know all the talent and everything, but uh, this is one of those teams that will punch you in the face. And uh, Sarah, you know, they've got, the, they've got the, the talent and the skill and the finesse but can they play up front against Norco and, and slow Norco down, slow that, that running game down? That's going to be interesting. LaHabra's playing at Calabasas. Uh, so Aaron Butler playing in the first round. A Canyon comes out to the IE to play Colony. So uh, we're going to have to see how uh, Colony's defense is able to play against uh, Canyon. Uh, you know, I think it's Anaheim Canyon. So that's uh, Orange County School um, coming out to the IE playing against uh, the Colony Titans and um, Highland going to play at Red Mountain. So following up their big game against Pinnacle and uh, commitment, Elijah Page and the big target that USC is recruiting in Deuce Robinson, uh, Highland and Caleb Lamu going out to play at Red Mountain where you've got wide receiver commit uh, um, Jacoby Lane. And so that's going to be uh, an interesting game. We'll be out there covering that game. And then Saturday, you're going to have a Saturday game dueling with the USC Cal game. Orange is playing at uh, Huntington Beach High School. It's going to be at uh, El Medina. Orange with the 2025 cornerback commit, uh, Aaron Jet White, playing. So uh, we'll have to see how that game goes. Haven't seen Aaron Jet White play this season yet. I've uh, been kind of concentrating on the 2023 class. Uh, but uh, 2025 already got that commit. So we'll see if uh, Orange is able to squeak in to the second round of the playoffs. For sure. Now, for week 10 of the college football schedule, you have the big one, Tennessee at Georgia, which is going to be where everyone's eyes are. Tennessee number one in the initial college football playoff rankings. Uh, Georgia number three. You have Alabama at LSU, another big SEC game. Texas at Kansas State. Kansas State uh, playing a little bit of a spoiler to some teams this year. Moving on up. Uh, Florida State at Miami, a battle of two kind of slogging Florida teams that slogging? have slogging, slogging. 
<laughs> I, I tried to think of a word and slogging came to mind. I don't I don't know if that's a real word. Mediocre would probably be the mediocre best slogging mediocrity of Florida State at Miami. And then you have Clemson at Notre Dame and USC fans should be rooting for Notre Dame to upset Clemson, which has lived dangerously this season with some uh, narrow escapes and comeback wins. And then in the Pac-12, you have UCLA at Arizona State. And UCLA, that USC game, is on the horizon. But Arizona State, if USC gets into a tiebreaker situation, a in the nitty-gritty of a tiebreaker situation, they'll need Arizona State to help them out with their strength of, strength of schedule. So kind of need to be rooting for ASU here. But even though a more powerful, higher-ranked UCLA team actually helps them. So a lot of good games on this weekend, Gerard. Yeah, a lot of interesting games. Obviously, the probably most important game for Trojan fans is Clemson at Notre Dame because it could bring Notre Dame right back into that top 25, and that would be you know very beneficial for them in terms of their placing, whether it be at-large bid or we're talking about the college football playoff. Uh, that would be very big for USC. One game that's interesting, and I think it's just not the game, it's obviously the season that Tennessee's having. Because there's a lot of Trojan fans pointing to year one after uh, uh, for Josh Heupel and sort of what Tennessee did in comparison to what they're able to do this season, which is a surprise to everybody. I don't think anybody thought watching them last year they were going to be able to parlay uh, that season, which I think they were seven and six, into this season. And well, we didn't so- know Hendon Hooker was going to be like the favorite for the Heisman. Yeah, really. Uh, they play at Georgia at face value. I haven't watched a lot of Tennessee this year, so I really can't speak to how good they are. Obviously, that 44-6 uh, whooping on t- Kentucky is pretty impressive, and they beat Alabama at home. Alabama really didn't play well in that game, but certainly at face value, I would say this is Georgia all day. Like, Georgia's winning this one. It's going to be 34 like 13 or something like that. But I don't know. Uh, it's it's definitely intriguing to see how much Tennessee has improved with year one under Josh Heupel and what USC might be able to do from year one to year two next year. Certainly it's another aspect, another sort of thing that USC Trojan fans can cite to say, we're going to the national championship game in year two. And, you know, that's, again, in my opinion, it's way too early to talk about college football playoff for USC. I I know this is not going to be popular. The pumpers are going to dump on me for this one. I don't think USC really wants to be in the college football playoff. I mean, I know they, they want to be, but I don't have the confidence that they could go into the college football playoff and actually be successful. I think it would be maybe a bad game for them, a matchup against the Ohio State or a, or a Georgia or Clemson, even in the first round, it just might not be, they might not be ready for prime time. I'm still on the fence about that in terms of, you know, how this, how good this team really is. You know, we're talking right now about wins and losses in a conference that is dog water. At the end of the day, you know, how good would they be against the upper echelon of college football right now? I feel like there's too many holes in this team. and. You might get exposed, and that inevitably hurts the recruiting 
you know, you because you just look bad. You saw, you know, sort of how the the ground shuddered under the feet of the Oregon football team going out there and getting absolutely obliterated by Georgia. You just don't want to end up on the bad side of those blowouts. And I think in year one, when you're really still trying to rebuild and try to get your philosophy and the culture right, um, you you don't necessarily need to be thrown out there into the fire against college football's best. You're coming away from a four-win team. I think the best USC could do is really sort of back their way into an at, at, at large bid maybe, you know, maybe they don't actually get to the college or excuse me, get to the Pac-12 championship game. They went out, but they still aren't able to get to the Pac-12 championship game. And they're able to kind of float in to maybe some other um, decent bowl and play against a team that they match up well against. And you're able to actually get, you know, 12, maybe 13 wins at the end of the season. That would be huge for recruiting. And I think help perhaps long-term the program better than just getting the college football playoff and then getting completely blown out by some team because you're just not ready for it yet. So that's sort of where I am with that. But watching Tennessee and seeing, you know, all of the sort of, hey, you know, this is what USC can do in in year two. Um, It's going to be interesting to see how Tennessee plays at Georgia. Again, I haven't seen enough Tennessee to really speak on how good they actually are, but they could get exposed against Georgia because I think Georgia is a pretty good team, even though not the most elite quarterback play. Uh, they're pretty damn talented. They're pretty damn physical, and they're able to kind of assert their will on most of these teams they play. I don't know if that's the game that they lose. I think Georgia is beatable, but I think it's probably going to be more of a matchup thing. And again, having not to seen Tennessee so much, I, it's hard to say whether they're going to match up well or not, but I, I don't know that a big game like this, you're going to catch Georgia up guard at home. Should be a fun one, and hopefully we can get to see some of that. Well, you'll have you'll have an easier opportunity to see both of those games. I'll probably be on my way to Cal versus USC, or actually on the field at some point. But with that, let's jump into some listener questions, Gerard. Again, if you want to ask us a question and get it answered on our podcast, uh, email us at podcast at usfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite. Cilantro Boys, 10K, Recruiting Podcast, Hurricane, whatever you want. Just make sure it identifies us so that we can get it in my inbox and then we can put it up. You can also DM me. That seems to be a popular method as well. But Gerard, I think we I forgot to tell you we actually have a voicemail too. I did not listen to it, so I have no idea what it asked, but we'll save that one. We'll warm up with a with a you know emailed one if that's okay with you. Yeah, you, you probably should vet maybe voicemail questions you never know what you're going to get i mean you know we i mean ryan up... put it in for us ryan put it in well, for us so i'm assuming it's uh been vetted to some regard but I mean, also you know, i can just ax it you could get a, a curtis from marino valley or eddie r with uh you know his dynamic alec baldwin impression impersonation or you could just get something you know cr- totally crazy. off the rails totally, totally off the rails and you know you have to <laughs> cut it out yeah well that's that's the beauty of this is it's not live so we can always cut to it so we'll see we'll see we'll get to it. let's warm up with some other ones first before we jump into the unknown uh this one comes from yak jagger sorry i said jagger jagger uh for the two-star pod mr trevino if both you and gerard were forced to make a bet on who usc ends up with at the qb position in the 2024 class who would it be and why appreciate the work dudes keep it up Gerard, I know you saw this question. You thought that's an interesting question, mainly because it's really tough to look into the future and kind of predict 
something like the 2024 quarterback. Well, it's there's only really two options right, right now. now yes, there's right Elijah now. Brown, uh, the four-star quarterback out of Modern Day High School, who we know USC is trying to make ground up on. You know, they offered him a little later in the process behind schools like Alabama, behind schools like Oregon. And then you have DJ Legway uh, out of Texas, who, again, you know, kind of was the guy for USC, sort of. They were going to put all their eggs in that basket. But then you had Baylor, Florida, some other schools, Texas A&M for a while, was uh, wooing him. And it seemed like USC was on the outside looking in. Obviously, with Texas A&M, not a great season. Granted, again, we talked about this. Has NIL overcome some of that? Um, still likes Baylor. Baylor sort of, I think, the, the hometown team for him. And he's very intrigued by Florida as well. So I think USC, with the season and everything going on, has, has made uh, some inroads. And he's supposed to be unofficially visiting USC for the Notre Dame game. So that will be interesting to see how much movement there is in his recruitment from that game and from his experience out on the West Coast. You know, you're trying to recruit somebody uh, to follow up with uh, Malachi Nelson. Um, you know, is that harder to do with an Elijah Brown or is it harder to do with DJ Lagway? I, I think it's harder to do with Elijah Brown because he's very uh, cognizant and, and un understands how good of a player Malachi Nelson is. And so, you know, maybe it's a little harder to stack those guys that know about each other, uh, whereas Lagway maybe doesn't really know a whole lot about Malachi Nelson and feels like, hey, I can go in there and uh, I'm a better player. I'm a better fit for the offense, et cetera. I can go in there as a true freshman. And, uh, and beat out Malachi Nelson, you know, not to say that Elijah Brown doesn't have that competitive attitude. It's just, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't have a sense for that. So you're really kind of flipping a coin there. I, I would say Elijah Brown, they probably have a better chance at just because he is local. There is a better pull from uh, modern day. And I think with some of those underclassmen at modern day, USC is in a very good position for. So I would say, Elijah Brown, if you put a gun to my head, but I actually think that there's probably going to have to be another scholarship offer that goes out there. And there's going to be probably four or five guys that they end up offering uh, before they actually find the quarterback for 2024. Can I just go with the other and go Michael Van Buren at St. Francis? Well, I mean, if, is there another? <laughs> I, I mean, I would, I would just take the other, like the you're creating field, an option. That there isn't an option. <laughs> I'm just going with the other. You know, it's like the the person that we don't know of yet. And I'm just going to go. go I would here. tend to lean in that direction as well. I, okay. I, you know, I obviously, if they're able to beat Notre Dame and you're able to really make some headway with Lagway, I, I think there's definitely still a possibility there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, right now they've only really got two scholarship offers out. Obviously, you've got Dylan Riola, who was offered a scholarship as well, but he's committed to Ohio State and doesn't look like he's going to be wavering from that commitment. So it really comes down. So Elijah Brown and DJ Lagway. But, you know, like you said with an other, yeah, I think that there potentially is going to end up being another quarterback offer out there. Could be Michael Van Buren, possibly, you know. Um, we're just going to have to see uh, how, how everything shakes out and whether that's dependent upon the vibe they get from Elijah Brown and DJ Lagway or there's something else in terms of just seeing more from some of these 2024 quarterbacks. Hard to, hard, hard to say right now. Let's roll that one into a question that actually talks about Michael Van Buren. D from Central Valley, who always asks, 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 excuse me, asks two questions. Uh, first one, looks like the high school recruiting season is almost over. 
Oh, it's far from over. But of these six targets, can you name the three that USC has the best shot of getting? Mateo, Elijah Hughes, Caleb Lomu, Roderick Pleasant, Douche Robinson, and Nicholas Harbour. And number two, GM, your QB evaluations are spot on. What are your thoughts on Michael Van Buren? Seeing the crazy game communication between Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams, I would assume USC could pretty much get any high school QB it wants. Uh, as far as the first question, D, I would go Caleb Lomu, Roderick Pleasant, Douche Robinson. Those would be my three. Gerard, I don't know where you would do. No, I agree with that. I think so. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and then evaluations of Michael Van Buren. We've talked about Michael Van Buren, I believe, on this show in we terms have, of his yeah. his, uh, his uh, evaluation. Being sort of that Bryce Bryce Young kind of kind of deal. That's that's what ESPN was kind of throwing out there when uh, St. Francis Academy played at Venice earlier in the year. That was the game that Sam Green committed to USC at halftime on. And so, yeah, you know he's smallish. Um, I don't know in terms of arm strength if he's necessarily on par with Bryce Young. I mean, that's an evaluation you got to make seeing a guy in person. Got to be around him a little bit. And certainly Bryce Young is an exception to the rule. I mean, he's 5'10", maybe. I mean, I think they've got him listed at Alabama at six foot. He's not six foot. He's small. And so there's not a lot of quarterbacks that small that have been super successful. So that's definitely something that I think, you know, does there have does there, does there need to be an in-person evaluation? You know, does he need to come out for an unofficial visit? And USC can sort of eyeball him and, you know, see how big he is. And, and you know, there's a lot of little nuances to the to the evaluation process, and particularly when you're talking about the quarterback position. But on paper, you know, we talked about this before, the mobile quarterbacks, the guys that can extend plays, the guys that can run by design, that is what Lincoln Riley has won with. And that, on paper, is what Michael Van Buren brings to the table. And so. I think, you know, they probably want to see more in terms of uh, his efficiency. And, um, you know, he's playing against the national schedule against teams that are, mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of very good teams. They're going to play IMG here in uh, a few weeks. And so that's going to be very interesting because he's going to be playing against a whole freaking squad of Division One players. And not just Division One players, but high-end Division One players. Guys like Desmond Ritz. So if he's able... Pass the ball, and, and you're going to see uh, them offensively have some success. You know, I think USC definitely would be in line to offer him a scholarship after good game film from that. So we'll see, you know, how this shakes out. Uh, but certainly, I think that um, from a profile standpoint, you know, USC uh, definitely would be in line to get to, to get a guy that might even be a little more athletic because Malachi Nelson sort of toes the line on being a dual threat quarterback, you know, that's not sort of his first instinct to run or to be a guy that actually runs by design, but he can't, he, he's not JT Daniels. You know, he's not Keaton Slovis. He's definitely a bit more athletic than those two guys, but he is a bit more of a pocket passer and definitely more polished as a pocket passer um, than some of the more athletic guys that you see out there, DJ Lagway. So, you know, my inclination still in, you know, from my perspective would be, Go after the guy that can definitely beat you with his legs and has the tools to be able to be a good passer because that's what you've won with in the past. Next question comes from Trojan 40,000. 
Trojan four zero 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 five. Do you know if USC has had any communication with 2024 offensive lineman Packy Finau, Justin Tawanau, or Eugene Brooks? I know it's a ways away, but just curious. Thanks for all the content you provide. Fight on. I, all those guys, I believe, I believe Eugene Brooks is the only one that has an offer. But in terms of Justin Taunau, Taunau, uh, I actually saw him play a couple weeks ago for Huntington Beach. He immediately caught my eye. Uh, it was a blowout loss for Huntington Beach uh, with Losal on the other side. That was the game that uh, Lincoln Riley showed up to. And big dude, legit, like six foot five, pushing six foot six. You know, he's got some talent, got some skill. You know, guy, you know, Lincoln Riley was watching that game, probably saw him. Probably a guy they're going to take a look at, maybe invite out to a camp uh, this coming spring, summer, what have you. Uh, But as far as I know, I do not know if USC is directly talking to him or any of those other guys. Uh, Eugene Brooks, I believe, does have the offer, Gerard. I don't know if you know off the top of your head. Yeah, he did get a scholarship offer earlier in the spring. I think they're still in communication with him, but... I get the sense USC may be pushing into another direction. They've offered quite a few offensive linemen at those interior positions, and Brooks is an interior guy. I think it's one of those situations where, you know, they're just going to continue to evaluate, get more senior film, look at the guys out of state that they like and see, you know, who who comes in on unofficial visits. Kind of early spring nowadays, you kind of have to sort your board out and figure out, okay, these are the guys we're getting on campus. These are the guys that we think we can follow up with during the summer. And it seems like if it's going to be like it was this year in terms of summer official visits for that 2023 year for the 2024 class, you're going to bring in a majority of your out-of-state guys during the summer. And you're going to get a feel for, you know, who's serious and who's just kind of taking a visit to feel it out. Again, talked about this in the past, but this past cycle and those summer visits, it was – the most challenging it's going to be for Lincoln Riley uh, in terms of trying to sell something that, you know, you have no proof of concept. You have nothing on the field to show. It's all just talk. That's not going to be the case going into the summer visits 2023. You're going to have this season to show for, going to have some, some development, um, the camaraderie of the team you're going to be able to show for, and um, you're going to have, you know, probably even higher expectations. And so I think that could create a lot more momentum in the offseason. If they're able to uh, win their bowl game and uh, have uh, some success here uh, with, with a good season, I think that uh, you're going to just see more commitments, I think, on their big recruiting weekend. And it, you could see maybe more from an out-of-state standpoint in terms of getting guys from Texas and grabbing a guy maybe from the South uh, early on and then you know trying to – uh, continue to have that momentum you know, during the season and, and win more football games. So uh, that's that's sort of, I think, how I see things shaking out from whether it be off the line or just in general. I think they've got to figure out at the back end of the season, coming out of January, because they are going to be able to do some evaluations in January and you'll have some of the coaches on the road. And then you get into you know February where you're bringing in uh, some guys for probably junior days. We saw USC had two different junior days. Um, February. I think it was, I want to say it was January and February, or it was February, March, but that's, that's sort of the window now you have. And then it's like, okay, this is what our board's going to, this is what our board's really looking like. These are the guys we had 
come out here on their own dime unofficially. And these are the guys we feel confident we can bring in for visits during the summer where we can sort of close the deal on it. So with those guys, you know, when you don't have those scholarship offers, obviously that's, you know, still up in the air. Um, those could come on unofficial visits during the spring, you know, sometimes during spring ball, maybe even earlier for unofficial visits during those junior days. We didn't see really any commitments come from those junior days. And again, I think that was really a filling out period for both the coaching staff and the recruits. you got top recruits that are like, okay, what's Lincoln Riley look like at, at USC? What's this feel like? You know, how is it different? And then you're getting to, okay, so this is how it seems. Seems cool. Seems good. It seems like the culture is changing, but is it really? Because we got to see during the season. Now you've got a season under your belt. I just think you're going to be able to close in some more guys early and just have a better idea. But that's not going to happen again until you start getting to the end of February into March. And then I think like the board sort of sorts out and you figure out, you know, is Eugene Brooks still a top priority? Or can you get uh, DeAndre Carter uh, committed, you know, early during the spring? Maybe make um, a, 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 a run at uh, Sandra Fua, uh, the five-star, or now he's a four-star out of Washington. Uh, some of these guys from Texas. Again, you know, how many of these guys from out of state that you want to prioritize actually get on campus for unofficial visits? And then you sort of, you know, balance that with the guys that you have locally that you really like. I mean, USC certainly this past year, it was, let's get the guys from out of state for these summer visits. Let's get them on campus now. And then we'll figure out locally if there's other guys that, you know, we want to sort out and we, we, we like from their senior film. But guys like, you know, Dijon Lafitte, who, you know, that he wasn't anywhere on anybody's radar uh, concerning USC during the spring or during the summer. You know, so he pops up during the season and, you know, you've already gone through and you've, you've uh, recruited guys. Um, uh, during the year, uh, during the summer, early on, defensive tackles, and you know you make your play at them, and if you're not able to get them, then you're able to fall back on some of those local guys. Next question comes from Drew, Chris, and Hurricane. I know you don't like to name names when it comes to commitment flips, so just give me positions. Also, have you guys seen Tobias Raymond, offensive tackle when you see commit play in person? I know Brandon Huffman is high on him. That comes from Drew. We unfortunately did not get opportunity to see Tobias Raymond play this season. This is actually something we were talking about. We were looking at the schedule for this week and that we'd never had the opportunity to go see him. It's just such a far drive um, all the way out there. So usually the one week I probably would have gone would have been when he played uh, Malachi Crawford uh, when those two teams uh, went to head to head, but I was out of town, so I was not able to make it. But yeah, unfortunately we were not able to uh, see Tobias Raymond play in person. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Brandon Huff, Huffman is high on him because he goes to Ventura High School, and that's Brandon's alma mater. So, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm, I don't want to. <laughs> that's not true. Uh, but, I mean, Brandon is obviously very familiar with Ventura, knows the coaching staff, and, you know, has talked to them and, and trust, you know, their evaluation with him. And he's he's high on them. Um, he's not a four-star. He's still a three-star. So he obviously feels like uh, it's more upside. He's a little more of a project at offensive line. Um, then, um, you know, maybe some of the other guys that USC has committed. Um, but yeah, we haven't been able to see him in person. I have not looked for his senior film online. Uh, maybe I have, but I hadn't, I know I've not seen it. I have not seen any senior film of him yet. Um, and like you said, I, I have watched Malachi Crawford senior film and some of these other players. It would have been great to see them both kill tubers one stone, but you know, when we like to get isolation film, we wouldn't be able to get both of those guys unless we had two people up there because they're going to be obviously on the field at the same time. Tobias Raymond is going to be playing offensive tackle. 
and Malachi Crawford plays uh, safety and cornerback. Uh, doesn't play a whole lot of receiver, or at least this past year uh, for Pacifica, he hasn't played a whole lot of receiver. Um, what the first part of the question in terms positions. of commitment positions and positions? Um, let me think off the top of my head here. I mean, I think defensive back is one you got to look at certainly um, where you might get some guys that are committed elsewhere coming in. Um, I think they'd like to do the same with defensive line. I think that's a, a position where they're looking. Um, I just don't know how successful they'll be able to get some of those guys on campus. You know, we've talked about um, Deshaun Womack and potentially trying to get him in for an official visit. He's committed to LSU. Sort of put some tweets out there that sounded like, oh, he's thinking about it. And then, you know, subsequently turned around and was like, oh, no, I'm committed to LSU. And his mom's like, no, 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 nothing to see here. Um, you know, not that we haven't seen that before. Uh, but, um, yeah, that, that I think defensively that would be where you would look. Um, I don't really see on the offensive line. I, I, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the war room. Not feeling a lot of traction with Francis Malagoa at this point, despite Miami's season and Lucas Simmons, I haven't heard anything about from any SC sources as far as getting him back on campus again. So despite those teams not being great, setting the world on fire, I don't know that there's going to be any uh, flip watches for, for those two players. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think defensive line and more like trying to get an interior guy uh, on campus that might be, you know, committed somewhere else. Or a guy that maybe is an edge, but you know would play on the interior like a um, a Mateo Ungulale, a guy that you know is is rated as an edge rusher, but is a guy that could slide inside and maybe play three technique. I know you know USC's been um, you know kicking the tires on a few recruitments and, and trying to get in, but I think those are probably the two positions. I I don't get a sense that they're really pushing hard for any of those other receivers. Uh, they're trying to keep um, you know J- Jacoby Lane wrapped up and and obviously with uh you know you got lemon and you've got branch there you don't really need to do a whole lot more on uh, the receiver end and uh, at tight end i think they'd like to uh to be able to close with with the top tight end like deuce robinson um they did have um what is it uh blanking on the name sperlin uh, is it spencer sperlin who's the georgia uh, pierce sperlin. yes pierce sperlin who took a kind of random unofficial visit out to USC the week um, kind of like the, the day after Deuce Robinson came back from Georgia for his official visit, which was interesting. So haven't heard too much more on that, but again, that's one of those things where you're not going to hear much about that. If, you know, uh, Pierce Berlin decides I want to take an official visit to USC, he's not going to announce it, you know, on social media, it's going to be kind of quiet. It's just going to sort of pop up at USC and that will be the way, it is for probably most of those players that they're still talking to. So that's uh, that's kind of sort of where we see it right now. Um, I don't necessarily see like running backs. I think they're pretty happy with running back. I haven't seen a whole lot of push in other directions or, you know, kicking the tires on Cedric um, uh, Baxter or some of these other guys that is it Cedric Baxter or Cedric Baker, Cedric Baxter out of Orlando, right? He's committed to Texas. Yeah, Baker, yes. Baker Baxter. Baxter Baxter. Yeah, get those uh, confused sometimes. Sometimes I call Brandon Baxter. Brandon I, Baxter. Yeah, it, it's Brandon Baker uh, from modern day. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Anyways, um, but nevertheless, yeah, I, that's kind of where it sits right now. You know, could change. Could You, you just never know. Like, could all of a sudden be somebody that 
pops up uh, out of the radar from another position, like a tight end position, you know, committed somewhere else. But um, that's kind of sort of the way it looks right now. Hey guys, Gerard has mentioned in a few podcasts the deceptive and wily nature of UCLA head coach Chip Kelly. In light of this, what do either of you see Kelly bringing to do against us when we play in three weeks? No huddle, fake punts, black leotards, RSC, RS Schindler. Black leotards. Um, I would say black leotards for sure. <laughs> and definitely some no huddle, just because USC's defense is uh, struggling at the moment. I don't think it's going to be really a whole lot. I mean, I don't know when UCLA's bye week is, but I think they already had their bye week. Um, I believe so. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of like unknowns necessarily uh, because they're having a good season. They're, they're just trying to win out now. You know, it's not like they had a throwaway season and I think they spent probably three or four weeks, you know, uh, practicing for, for USC at, at that, that first year of, of Chip Kelly. Um, I, I think, you know, he's just wily from the standpoint of he will sandbag, you know, certain games and he'll do certain things. And um, it's just funny to see the UCLA fan base, how frustrated they are with them. And then, you know, how they, they turn as these greatest coach. I mean, that's one guy again. I, I mean, I'm not trying to put it out there um, because I'm hearing anything or what have you. But I, I just in my own head wonder with the lack of support that he's seen um, in previous years uh, from the UCLA fan base. And uh, would he be interested in some of these jobs? Would he be interested in the Auburn job? You know, would he be interested in Nebraska? I would think Auburn would be more intriguing for him. But you'd have um, to recruit, Gerard. You'd have to yeah, recruit. It would be, it would be similar to, to Gus Malzahn, you know, in terms of uh, how it's, it's really all about the system for him and what have you. Um, yeah, does he have to go to one of those, those, those schools and have to recruit, you know, are they going to force him to recruit? I mean, he was at Oregon and obviously Nike supplements, uh, Oregon's recruiting to some extent. And, and you know that now because we see how Chip Kelly recruits not being at Oregon. I mean, he's pretty aloof. He doesn't really, uh, put a lot of emphasis in after going to top players. They're doing a little more of that now. You know, we've seen them offer some guys and, and try to, you know, use the momentum they've gained on the field to try to get more top guys. Um, but certainly I think he's happy with just recruiting out of the portal and just getting guys that he he feels fits the system. Um, but in terms of like, yeah, playing against USC, I, I think they just feel like they're a good matchup against US, uh, USC. They see what um, Jaden Delora did uh, against USC's front seven, and they probably feel like Dorian Thompson-Robinson can do that and some. They can run the ball against USC. They probably just feel like they can just run up and down the field against USC offensively. And defensively, they can put more pressure on Caleb Williams. Um, so I think, you know, the UCLA coaching staff probably feels very confident that they can beat UC, uh, USC. I don't think they need any tricks or anything of that nature. Uh, I think they feel like uh, they can probably bully them even more than they bullied Utah. Bully Utah, indeed. Chris and Gerard, with the transfer portal, this one comes from Eric and Duck Country. With the transfer portal, it seems like it would po it would be impossible to stack high-quality quarterback depth across recruiting classes. Do you think utilizing the portal and grad transfers regularly could be vi could be a viable strategy? Thanks. Or just the quarterback position? I, I you believe know? that's what the – yeah, I believe that's the heart of the question. 
Oregon kind of tried to do that a bit, and some other schools have tried to do that a bit. And I, I mean, I mean, obviously, listen, has there anybody been more successful than Lincoln Riley in doing that? I mean, Jalen Hurts, Kyler Murray, Murray Baker, um, and, and Baker Mayfield are all transfers. Caleb Williams is a transfer. <laughs> so, I mean, technically, there's nobody better at turning around a transfer and uh, getting the most out of them. Now, having said that, you would think that you kind of want to bring guys through your system and have more more time with them. Um, but, uh, I mean, at face value, I don't like it. I feel like culturally it kind of is a bit difficult sometimes. I mean, you know, if you get the right guy and you can get, um, you know, a Russell Wilson or, or Caleb Williams or someone who's really got their stuff together and they're mature and, you know, they come in and, and they're they're able to sort of hit the ground running uh, with the system. Obviously, Caleb Williams coming in is, is a different situation because he was at Oklahoma with Lincoln Riley. But those other guys, you know, Jalen Hurts comes over from uh, Alabama. Um, Kyler Murray comes over from Texas A&M. Uh, Baker Mayfield was a walk-on that came over from Texas Tech. So, you know, those situations, you had guys that had to kind of learn the system, uh, but they learned it quickly. And they turned it around and, and had, you know, fantastic seasons. You know, Colin Murray and Baker Mayfield ended up being Heisman Trophy winners. So there was an argument that, hey, yeah, do that. Like, do you really need to get Malachi Nelson? Do you really get DJ Lagway? Do you need to really go after these high school guys when you clearly have a system that works really well for players that are already in college that are, they're, you know, one or two years and boom, you can, you can make it work. Now, I guess maybe the argument would be, okay, so – what didn't you do at Oklahoma with those players? You didn't win a national championship. No, I mean, was that really on the quarterback though? Was that really on the offense? People would argue, you know, that was more the defenses that let them down in those college football playoff games. But I mean, it is an interesting question uh, more because it's Lincoln Riley and because of what he's done at face value. Like I said, I would think you want to bring guys through the system and, uh, and, and, and be those leaders in the locker room that have been there and there's consistency there, and you're not necessarily just looking for mercenaries. Um, but it definitely gives you a little bit of confidence. Like, you know, quarterback's not the biggest deal. Like, if they don't get a guy in 2024, is it really that big a deal? Because you're going to have Caleb Williams leaving, and yeah, you have Malachi Nelson there, but you might be able to just go after somebody in the portal, the best quarterback in the portal that sees that Caleb Williams is there, and he's got uh, he's competing against a, a redshirt freshman. You know? But then you have issues where you you look at your depth. And this is something that he kind of ran into a bit at Oklahoma where you you go and you bring in that guy in the portal, right, for 2024. And then Malachi Nelson competes against them, and Malachi Nelson loses out. And then Malachi Nelson says, okay, I'm leaving. So now, you you know, you're sort of you, – you've got some depth problems. So you got to be careful with it, I, I, I think. I, I think, you know, what you would like to do is go – to the high school ranks and get your best players and bring them through the system and have Malachi Nelson be your Heisman Trophy winner after Caleb Williams was your Heisman Trophy winner and just, you know, create that sort of system like USC had back in the day when, you know, you had Carson Palmer, then Lincoln, or then um, Matt Liner, and then you had Mark Sanchez and Booty. And it just was like, you know, it didn't matter. It's like, okay, we got a five-star guy now and we're going to bring in a five-star guy, you know, the, the next class, the next class. I mean, that's what Alabama has been doing. That's what, uh, you know, Ohio State's been doing. You stack those positions with good players. 
because, you know, you're going to get your guys out and you're going to get them drafted. And if you're able to do that, you are able to stack those classes because um, you're showing the player development and the opportunity to get drafted. Happy Dia de los Muertos to you both. I'm curious if you guys could break down the process of decommitting. Generally speaking, who initiates these conversations? Once a recruit commits, do opposing recruiters still stay in touch and keep tabs? Or does the student reach out to explore his options? It's fascinating that once Elijah Page decommitted, all the crystal balls went to USC. How was that possible and how did the experts know? What usually happens behind the scenes to enable a decommitment? Still not ready to give up on Josh Connerly. Tamale Tom, and I cut off the first part where he said, hola, Chris and Gerard, the jalapeno homies. So shout out to Tamale Tom. Well, I guess a lot of things really kind of go into a decommitment. Usually, well, not usually, but a lot of the time you kind of get that initial smoke of, hey, this could be a guy who might be looking elsewhere. You know, in the past, we've heard it maybe, you know, a month before. Uh, Certainly with like Bryce Young, that was one that we heard for several weeks until it became clear like, okay, this is going to happen. This is probably when it's going to happen. This is the week it's going to happen. And, you know, recruiters do try to stay in touch. You know, you still, I mean, there's some cases where it's, very clear, like, okay, this is like a clean break. You know, people are going to go their separate separate ways. But there are other instances where, you know, they, they say they're going to keep it open. And for the most part, they do. That's usually the case of, like, a kid, like, like take Dylan Williams, who recruited, uh, committed early and has all this time and then, you know, decides to reset the process a little bit. Th- that's where a case where, you know, USC and the recruiters will still – you know, reach out and, and communicate and keep going and, 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 and do all those things. And that happens, too, with, you know, guys in the current uh, cycle. But it kind of just depends on the context of the uh, the decommitment uh, that that happens in, in uh, you know, what's going on with that specific team or if they're coaches that leave or, you know, something else happens or they bring in somebody for that position and they don't generally like that. Or in a lot of cases, a decommitment could be, you know, a kid – or the school kind of initiating that that decommitment process and saying, "Hey, we need your spot for 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 another person." You know, I believe it's called getting processed, Gerard. As you're alluding to, different prospects, different scenarios. Obviously, Dylan Williams kind of came out of nowhere for everybody, but Dylan Williams, being a part of the 2024 class, it wasn't that he was leaning to any other school, and that's why he decommitted. It was really just opening up the process and, you know, wanting to wear his Georgia gloves or wanting to wear his Tennessee gloves or his Oregon gloves and not feeling he was disrespecting USC by doing those things. It's all about gloves is what you're saying. It's all about the swag. But then you have other situations where the decommitment comes and it's a more serious point in the process. So Elijah Page would be during the season, senior year. This is we're playing for keeps here. How that goes about is usually there's smoke coming from the school that has confidence that they're going to flip him or just the people around him that are talking about taking visits and looking at other schools. Usually it's the school that the kid is committed to, which has probably the least information. You're in the dark the most because most of the time 
And this wasn't really true of Elijah Page because the Notre Dame guys kind of had a feeling, you know, with the way the season was going and things, you know, they, they had some feeling that maybe he was starting to waver a bit. But a lot of times it's just complete radio silence. And it's like, okay, this kid is not communicating. He's not showing up for recruiting events or not games. And all of a sudden he pops up somewhere else. And that's where all the sirens start to go off and the red flags about, okay, he's starting to look around. He's not comfortable with his commitment. And it's a lot of, again, kind of dodging the issue. And then all of a sudden, respect my decision, no interviews. And then he's decommitted. And in some cases, it's a quick flip, like it was with Elijah Page. I think with Elijah Page, everybody understood that he wanted to stick closer to home. And he was feeling like, you know, USC was one of those top schools. Uh, in his recruitment, he was going to take that official visit there. And so there was sort of a limited amount of schools that all of a sudden become possibilities on the back end of that decommitment. So that's also how you know. But a lot of times, yeah, it's really just, you know, actions speak louder than words. And there's a little bit of smoke. And that smoke tends to come from uh, the school that that kid is talking to more and then all of a sudden wants to, you know, have a visit. And all of a sudden that sort of gets leaked and that comes out and that happens. But um, a lot of times, with uh, the school itself that has that commitment, they don't really necessarily know, you know, the kids, it's hard to say no, it's hard to say thanks, but no thanks. And those conversations don't come out. Certainly with Josh Connerly, that wasn't a situation where he was committed anywhere. He was choosing to commit for the first time between Oregon and USC. And while you can say, well, he was silently committed to USC and you basically flip from that silent commitment, silent commitments don't mean anything. They're farts in the wind. They don't mean anything. You, you, you really got to put a little bit of emphasis on the, the verbal commitment. But even then, we're seeing that, you know, that doesn't mean a whole lot. The real question now in modern day recruiting is the NIL commitment. And if kids take money up front, you know, is there some kind of contract involved? Is that keeping them committed? Can they still, you know, uh, waiver from that commitment, even though there's some sort of obligation there monetarily? We don't know. You know, that's still something that's... um going to be sorted out in the next few years really uh but um that's that's how decommitment sort of happen it's it's a lot of behind the scenes stuff and maybe you know a high school coach or somebody starts reaching out and saying hey you know who wants to maybe visit this school um and again actions speak louder than words if they're not around the program very much that sort of um, tells you you know how things are going to go but in the case of dylan williams i mean he was just at an usc unofficially uh, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot in terms of not liking USC. It just seems like he wants to go and look around and see what other schools have to offer. And again, I think NIL has something to do with that. There's a little bit of a lure out there and, Hey, you're more of a commodity and you're going to be fought over more if you're uncommitted. Whereas, you know, if you're committed to USC schools, you're just not going to even try with you. We have three more questions left. Do you want to try the voicemail? Sure. Go for it. Let's let's see. I hope you can hear it. You should be able to. But let's see what's going on here. I have no idea who this is from. For the Cilantro Boys, the greatest Latino-based USC recruiting podcast where the two hosts aren't married to each other. Um, two questions. First question, um, can we get more luau's? Because it seems like the luau's in June worked. So if you can reach out to the coaches and just ask for more That'd be great. Like four or five more luau's before signing day. That'd be that'd be awesome. You guys can do that. That'd be fantastic. Also, 
I keep on hearing that we need to beef up and get like thicker for the Big Ten, or the USC needs to get bigger for the the Big Ten. I've been watching a lot of Big Ten West. Hope. I don't think we want to be anything like Iowa or Wisconsin. I think we should go for speed. Um, those guys all look like they have really thick ankles, can't move laterally. I'd rather be the different team than the team that is slow and plodding like everybody else. There's only two teams, maybe three teams in the whole uh, big conference that look like they have any speed at all. I'd rather be one of them than one of the slow plotting teams that uses a lot of fullbacks. Uh, Hots, Eddie from Orange. We mentioned Eddie from Orange, and lo and behold, Gerard, it was Eddie from Orange. It was Eddie R., which he wasn't, I guess, speaking low because the kids were sleeping, so... He was in his normal voice. Sounded like he was actually driving on the road. He's probably it did sound like he was driving somewhere on the road. Yeah, Headed yeah. down to the OC, you know, in, in, in SC country. Uh, first question, more luau's? Possibly, potentially. Maybe they have a sushi night. Maybe it's uh, Cilantro Boy, uh, Fiesta. Catered. Um, catered. You could have a lot of stuff going on. You know, Southern California, you've got some great cultural food and experiences. Obviously, the luau is, you know, a bigger uh, sort of experience, which is is built for tourists for the most part these days. So it sort of lends itself to a, a recruiting visit. So I understand how that, but you know, I mean, you could have, uh, you know, pinatas and, and maybe have some like Oregon duck pinatas and some new Sally Broom pinatas and some crazy stuff with some street tacos and whatever, probably be pretty cool too. So we'll see. I think, um, you know, that, that event, you know, we, we talked about it right afterwards and was like, Hey, listen, Gotta let it, gotta give some time to see how this all plays out. Everybody wanted to make their judgment as to how that worked um, coming out of July. And, you know, certainly it was new for USC. Never had two dozen recruits officially visiting at once. And uh, there was, you know, the possibility that it was just too much, too many guys and not enough time with each guy. But now uh, we're beyond that 50% rate, that 50% ratio, which we said, usually is the mark of a successful recruiting weekend. And because you've got 2,000, you've got two dozen guys there, it's like, okay, that's a lot of commits that you're going to have to get from that weekend to get to that 50%, but they've gotten a lot of them. So uh, I think it's 11 now or something like that. I mean, we'll have to go back and check, but that sounds right. I think it's 11 uh, recruits that were on campus that weekend that have committed and you still got some outstanding, you know, guys like, Marquise Deal and uh, Mateo Ungalale, et cetera. Uh, Warren Robertson is another guy that was on that weekend. So uh, potentially could get right on over uh, the dozen mark, which would put them, uh, you know, over 50. So they're kind of actually technically one maybe down from that 50% ratio, but they're close enough that I think with the amount of guys they had on campus to have that many commits from that one weekend, uh, definitely you have to say that was a successful weekend. And it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts and formulates the model for USC going forward. Is it going to be one of those things where they just have big recruiting weekends and then they don't have anything? You know, is it some schools like to spread it out and they have all these kids come in during the season, they have multiple uh, visit weekends and they have things, you know, during the spring. Uh, Is it going to be one of those things where it's like, listen, we're going to do it all on a junior day. We'll have two junior days and then we'll have some guys come in here and there at spring ball. And then we're going to have, you know, a couple guys come in first week of June. And then we're just going to have a massive recruiting weekend, second week of June. 
And then maybe we'll have a guy or two the second week of June. But we're going to really do more camps and stuff like that. So we'll see you know, how the model goes. Uh, for the second part of the question, in terms of USC recruiting to get bigger and stronger up front, I think that's the specific part of what we're talking about. In terms of the evolution of the depth chart, getting bigger players and more physical players up front. And it's not like you want to get guys that are just big for the sake of being big. When you're at Iowa, Wisconsin, you're going to get a lot of those farm boys. Some of those guys are not very athletic. They're just big guys. And well, just look to- at Tackett Curtis, who is an athletic marvel. You know, a guy who can play is playing like a safety role and does re- returns punts and plays quarterback. And his coach even told me like these days you don't, they don't want like this big 250 pound Mike linebacker. They need someone like him. That's, you know, two, two thirty, two thirty five with speed. So that's kind of what they're, they are getting bigger and stronger, but I don't think they're sacrificing any athleticism or speed moving forward. That's the thing. You don't want to sacrifice athleticism. You want Braylon Shelby. You want a 250 pound edge guy, but he can still move in space. Um, Ohio State is still very athletic. They still get it done. Um, now, in terms of going the complete opposite to, do, to to go the complete opposite to be a matchup problem, I mean, we can look at the Pac-12 and we can look at a school like Washington State, which took that approach. They could not recruit on the same level as USC, UCLA, Oregon. So they said, all right, we're not going to compete with those teams. We're going to go way of the spread offense we're going to go with an air raid and we're going to go with small defensive linemen that we're going to try to win with speed and chip kelly was similar to that to some extent he decided you know what i'm going to have an offense that's going to be different than everybody else's i can't compete with lsu and usc and texas and these type of schools head to head get those same type of linemen and win and lose games with those type of players. I need to have a system that's a little bit different. So I'm going to get guys that can run up and down the field. And at that point in time, you know, you didn't have any sub rules and the eight second rule for subbing, and you could just run up and down the field. And it worked to some extent, you know, he got to a national championship game. um, But I think really their best was when they were able to have some really elite defensive linemen. And they were, I don't know if I would say they were undersized. They were they were a little slimmer maybe than what you would find with an Alabama that's running a 34 defense. But I mean, you had a guy like DeForest uh, Buckner. You had Eric Armstead. And those guys ended up going to the NFL, and they were big, tall. They were really more lengthy defensive linemen that they had playing for Oregon um, with some of those uh, – that, that the latest national championship team that they had. Um, but it was still pretty elite talent on the defensive line. I think with USC – you don't have to fudge so much in terms of your personnel. You can't get some of those guys that can play head-to-head uh, with those guys that are down in the South. And we've seen it before. We saw USC uh, going against Auburn and those good Auburn teams and, and beating them uh, with guys like Sean Cody and Cedric Ellis. Um, certainly, you would love to have uh, some of those defensive linemen that you have down South that are bigger and athletic. It's just in terms of what's worked. You know, the teams in the South are bigger. They're definitely much bigger than USC. You look at Georgia's defensive line, look at Alabama's defensive line, look at LSU's defensive line even now, and LSU doesn't have that great of a defense this year. They're, they are definitely bigger, but they're also still athletic. And so 
USC's not really either right now. They're they're athletic, maybe if you're comparing it to Iowa or what have you, but you really don't want to allow those teams to be able to beat you with low-hanging fruit and just line up in a freaking stack formation uh, tight, three tight ends, and just blow you off the ball because you're more athletic. It's like, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work, and it didn't work for Washington State. They weren't able to be an elite team um, going that route. And you could say, well, you know what? USC can get more athletes so they can be faster and you can be more of an extreme at that point. But, you know, we also look at what Graham Harrell did. And a lot of people thought when he was hired, oh, my gosh, look at what they do at Texas Tech. Look at what they can do at Washington State offensively, how they pass the ball around. Just plug in USC's talent, guys like Amon Ross St. Brown and Drake London and everything. And they could be even better. And it didn't really work like that. Like there was some success, certainly. And they had a year there where you had, you know, Tyler Vons and you had Drake London, you had Amon Ra and you had Michael Pittman. You had, you know, some really great receivers and you had a, a good offense, but it wasn't a world beating offense. And so I think you do still have to get bigger. You still have to be more physical. You, you do not want to lose to teams because they can just line up and run right over you. And you're just trying to, you know, hope that they can't compete with you offensively. You want to be able to stop some teams and do some things up front. And you have to mirror more of what I think Ohio State has done than what Wisconsin or or some of those other teams are doing. Michigan, I haven't had a chance to really see how athletic they are. Um, we know what you know Jim Harbaugh is about. You know, he likes to run the ball. But from everything that I've heard, he's sort of come out of his shell a little bit and is passing the ball more and being a little more spread and trying to recruit more athletes. You know, they're trying to recruit more athletes. You know, Michigan's going on the East Coast and going after Virginia guys and New Jersey guys as well, trying to get some guys from Florida. And we know that Ohio State recruits Texas very well, and they're trying to recruit the South. They'll get some guys from Florida here and there. So, you know, they're, they're bigger teams that are athletic. USC has some athletes, but they got to get bigger. So I don't agree with that not still being a priority. I think they definitely have to continue to get bigger and you want guys more like Braylon Shelby, which are bigger, but still retain a lot of athleticism and that ability to be able to play in space. Because, yeah, that is sort of where the game is going. And you talked uh, a little bit um, about this, you know, when we were kind of off air. And uh, there's even a little bit of this came up on the Peristyle about Gronk. Um, he was talking on the telecast to the Pac-12 crew, Rob Gronkowski, who played at Arizona and obviously was a great uh, tight end for the Patriots, about how lateral the college game is and how in the NFL you can't get away with that. The defensive players are just too big and athletic to be able to be going sideline to sideline so much with the ball. You're going to get your guys killed. And that's true. Uh, the, uh, the, the offenses in the NFL tend to be a little more vertical. Now you have teams like the Chiefs that still play around a little bit with little mesh routes and you have some zip motion, and when they had uh, Tariq Hill there, they used him a bit in motion. They, they, they ran some screen balls and stuff like that. They got a good quarterback, and they had a really good offensive system. But in general, yeah, they try to get a little bit more up and down the seams because you've got some big linebackers that can run. And that's you know certainly a difference. You know When you have guys in that front seven that can run, that's a big difference between the NFL and, and the college system. I would say that USC – is maybe a little bit more lateral right now than they should be. 
Uh, I think they need to, as they get better um, at certain positions, they should get more north and south. And again, I think, you know, the, the run game, um, you saw, I mean, when they got vertical, that one play with a slow mesh replay action, uh, you know, they got the ball to Kyle Ford. That was a great vertical play, you know, so and that was based off, you know, the play action. And the more you run the ball, the more that play action is going to actually work. So I do think USC can get a little more vertical. Certainly the ball carriers themselves need to get a little more vertical. I think Caleb Williams is making some business decisions. You know, maybe Travis Dye here and there is making some – they're kind of got their eyes on how can I negotiate myself out of bounds or towards the end zone when they could just cut up field. And, hey, man, get down. If you want, don't want to take a hit, you dive, you take a take a slide, do something, but don't – you know, you're trying to get out of bounds so much. Football is one of those games that when you play to not get hurt, that's when you get hurt. So there needs to be a little more decisiveness, and maybe Gronk was actually seeing a little bit of that as well in terms of the, the lateralness of, of that game. Um, but I, I do agree that, you know, as the better teams, they're the teams that can make those big plays up and down the field. And and some of that just is a result, I think, of the run game. I'm officially banning questions next week because we're already approaching three hours and it's driving me crazy. And we still have two very long questions left. So we're going to hit three hours. I'm already I already see it. It's already here. So I'm banning questions next week. That's an official uh, decree I'm doing. Uh, Gerard, next question comes from Ted. Uh, it's three questions in one, so let's hit it with some pace, please. Hearing Helium Boys, great marathon show mostly every week. Now that we're, on tr- that we're on the back nine of the season, a few questions. Look at the roster. So who do you think is coming back? What do you think are the positions of greatest need to backfill via the porthole? Uh, with several programs being far off early expectations, might there be some real talent from programs like Texas A&M, Texas, Wisconsin, Cal, uh, parentheses, the freshman running back Stanford, David Bailey, even Oklahoma or others who may contact, who make contact, who may make contact. You think that there would be you? Ugh, my brain. <laughs> Why don't you start brain. with one question at a time, Chris? You always do this. You go into a question, that's five questions, and then we're supposed to remember. So what was the first question? Just one at a time. What was the first question? OK, it was about at the roster. the portal. Who do you think is coming back and what do you think the positions are greatest need to backfill via the portal? I think Jonah Monheim will be back. I think Cortland Ford will be back. I think Justin Dietrich will be back. Uh, that's the main ones off the top of my head right now. So we're just talking about offensive line. So you think Justin Dietrich will be back? You don't think he's going to make an NFL jump? I think he needs more center tape. That's what I think. Okay, that's that's fair enough. That's a, that's a good take, and that would be a pretty big get for USC to have their center coming back, a, a guy that at least was experienced, and certainly he's experienced playing center. He played center in high school. One of the few guys that you know you recruit out of high school that actually was a high school center to play that position. So that's that's interesting. I mean, I think he's played well at guard this year. He has the opportunity to leave, but that would be a big get for USC to get. Uh, back on the roster, uh, interject, you know, a little bit of experience on the interior because, you know, they're going to lose that with Milan and Voorhees leaving. Um, Cortland Ford, yeah, I think all those guys, like you said, uh, are going to be back. Quinones, I think, will be back. Um, Lovelace, I think, will be back. We'll get to see maybe more of him and, you know, how he's able to play uh, in that system. Um, so, yeah, I think at the offensive line, 
Uh, those are the guys coming back. If you're just talking in general, the sort of uh, fringe guys, because there's a lot of those. You know, we're in that COVID waiver period where there's guys that are, you know, they're they're fifth year juniors, um, and they're coming up for six year seniors, and you're wondering, okay, there's two things at play here. One, we know that USC traditionally always has a couple guys leave that shouldn't leave. Okay, guys that end up free agents and they try to get on to a team and you're just thinking, why did you leave early? You could have had another year and you could have had some good film. Now, in years past, that was another year with Clay Helton. And there's there's really not necessarily a ton of um, prospects in terms of the development or that they were going to have a good year. So I can understand you go, ah, it's just another year, Clay Helton, and we're going to win maybe eight games. Uh, with this year and this team and this coaching staff, you have the potential of maybe, you know, a national championship or a playoff run and development. And so there might be more in, uh, there might be more reason to come back uh, from that standpoint. And also the retention of NIL, right? There's, there's that potential with uh, the bigger name guys that could demand some NIL money and some endorsements and it's less necessity for them to leave uh, for their families uh, financially. So we have to see how that goes, you know, with uh, some of these guys that are, that are in that sort of quasi, you know, redshirt juniors, uh, you know, maybe a a COVID senior, Um, the guys that are sort of going to be interesting. Malcolm Epps technically has another year. Um, that he could be at USC. You know, does he come back? He's not a guy that, to me, has great draft stock, um, but he's certainly probably feeling like he could leave and he could go somewhere else. Um, Solomon Tolaupupu, you know, is he a guy that says, all right, you know, kind of did my thing at USC, now I'm playing defensive line, uh, played a little bit uh, here and there, but don't feel like I'm going to be a starter. Or I'm going to be a guy that's going to be able to come in and uh, and play big minutes. You know, even with Solomon Bird and Nick Figueroa going, you know, maybe he gets a little itchy and decides he, he wants to jump in the portal, maybe go somewhere else where he feels like he gets more playing time. Um, I feel like Solo's made it this far that he sticks with it. You know, like I, I, I think he had plenty of opportunity, and we've written about this in the past, to leave already. He could have left last summer, last spring, last winter. You know, they really tested him to see if he wanted to come back, and he wanted to come back. So I think he he does come back. Solomon Bird. Uh, And right now, Chris is grinding his teeth because he's like, we're not even through, like, the first question yet, and I wanted you to go rapid fire. (laughs) But, you know, rapid fire doesn't happen on a three-part question. Um, Solomon Bird is a great example of a guy who I think think he could leave. I think – he potentially, he's got to have another game here or two, uh-huh. gets a sack or two. So really, I think, get on the radar. Um, he's kind of flatlined a little bit, but that's a guy that I think could potentially leave for sure. Uh, Raylan Goldforth, that's going to be an interesting one. I think that's potentially a portal guy. Maybe at the end of spring, you get Tackett Curtis in. If he feels like Tackett Curtis is being shuttled in to be a starter, to go along with um, Eric Gentry, I could see maybe Raylan, uh, Raylan Goldforth feeling like, oh, I'm going to go somewhere else where I can be a starter right away. You know, potentially. That, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, 
I think you're going to see some some departures from the defensive backfield. Um, I don't want to get into speculating who, but I think there's some guys there that just aren't playing that could definitely um, bolt. Um, Shane Lee, I think technically Shane Lee has another year if he wants to stick around. I don't think he does. I think he leaves. Uh, yeah. So I think that linebacker position will be open. Um, so that's, yeah, that's when we're talking about just overall, you know, there's going to be some underclassmen guys, but those guys are not really, you know, we're not necessarily talking about them and I don't want to talk it into existence guys leaving. Uh, but, uh, certainly you're going to see on the back end some redshirt freshmen and some sophomore guys are going to leave. I think that's true on the offensive line. That's potentially true on the defensive line. Um, and I think that will be true also, uh, with, uh, the secondary, the secondary is actually very young. Uh, when you look at it from an eligibility standpoint, you got a bunch of freshmen, you got a bunch of sophomores. And so I think people are going to be looking around. They're going to go, okay, you know, who am I playing over here? You know, who's on the field and who, who's just not playing, you know, there's definitely a few names you could throw out there. So I think that you're going to see some guys leave. And that's where we're looking right now and saying, okay, deep in the backfield, the safety position, that's pretty, that's pretty stacked. Yeah. But if you lose, you know, two, two guys, uh, you know, into the portal, then you might really want to push and try to get another safety in this class. And that's what I think USC is doing. I think there's like a low key kind of pushing for it, but you could end up getting a guy out of the portal just as well as you could get a guy leaving or losing uh, to the porthole. The, the issue is, again, you've got guys there that are already established. Can you actually get somebody who's confident enough that they're going to play over Kalen Bullock or Bryson Shaw or Latrell McC- McCutcheon? Um, or, you know, some of these other guys like Max Williams. Max Williams is another guy that could potentially go. I think he's a retro junior right now. I mean, he's draft eligible. He could be one of those guys that kind of surprises people and all of a sudden just decides, hey, you know what, I think I could get drafted. I'm going to sneak in there. I would be a little surprised just because I think from a combine standpoint, he's going to be one of those guys that suffers a bit. Um, They're not going to appreciate him as a football player. Uh, If he leaves early, he's a guy that really needs that, like, senior bowl. To, to go out there and, and, you know, get those, those scouts to warm up to him by how he plays instead of just, you know, the numbers that he puts up. I mean, I edited the second question, so I think I can do it now. Let's go. With several programs far off from early expectations, might there be some real talent from programs like Texas A&M, Texas, Wisconsin, Cal, i.e. the freshman running back, Jaden Ott, Stanford, David Bailey, even Oklahoma, or do others who make contact target and may be interested in SC? Nope, still, still, still biff the ending ending part. I guess what he's saying, whether people from other programs entering the portal that may be interested in USC. Short answer: Yes. Yes, yes, of course. I mean, we don't know. We have no idea who's going to be in it. I yeah, do not think they would care about Jaden Ott because they have two really talented freshmen coming in. Uh, yeah. David Bailey. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That Stanford degree looks pretty good to him. So I think he would stick around. Not sure what happens with David Shaw. But all those other programs, everyone's going to have kids enter the portal, and we won't really know what it really looks like until December. Yeah, I think Bailey is an intriguing prospect just because you're probably going to lose Nick Figueroa and Solomon Bird. I'm still kind of putting that out there. Um and so that rush in sort of position becomes uh, interesting and, and you do have those two really good recruits there and you want to keep those guys, but that could be something that doesn't really happen until maybe next spring. Like you said, you know, what happens with David Shaw? I think David Shaw's there as long as he wants to be there personally. Uh, and I think that helps them retain a guy like David Bailey. 
But yeah, if he gets the itch of, you know, I want to go win a championship. And I don't know if that happens now, you know, that might not happen until it was like junior year, but then you're looking at, okay, is he a guy that's playing uh, to win or is he just coming out? Cause you know, he wants to try to get his draft status up and he feels like he's not really going to be able to do that at Stanford. There are definitely going to be questions about him coming from modern day and, you know, the amount of winning that he did at modern day. And that was part of the recruiting process for him. He talked about wanting to go to a school where it had decent balance. Um, but it's, you know, definitely something to say that going into a commitment and say that when you're already out of school and you're established. And like you said, you know, you're, you're there academically and you feel pretty good. Um, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that, uh, you know, he ends up uh, in the portal at some point. And I'm asking the third question because reading it, it's basically something we've already addressed on the show about interest recruits recruits on commitment flip watch. We already talked about that. So well, you're not asking, you're axing. Axing. I say ax earlier and I say asks. Ax. <laughs> Never mind. I'm moving on. I'm done. Last question. Hello, Peristyle Podcast. Hello, Peristyle Recruiting Podcast. Our official name is Kapan Star Recruits, but that is besides the point. Ari Wasserman, Ari Wasserman of The Athletic had a critical response to a mailbag question on USC football recruiting not being elite under Lincoln Riley. He seems to think USC football is in trouble on the recruiting trail. Do you agree? And it's time to start getting concerned that the next couple of classes will not be elite enough to fix USC's defensive weaknesses. I'm just going to go out and say I am not worried in the least bit i think no it's no at this point we can't make any judgment that uh that that this class is not going to be elite i mean if elite you're saying is top three you know the number one class in the nation uh, it's not probably going to be that but there is also some hindsight that has to be used when you start talking about elite classes because you know you look at what players actually ended up being really good out of it. Sometimes you get some guys that are three stars, low four stars that end up being really good players. So yeah, it's very early in the process um, to start making these grand sweeping generalizations of, you know, what USC is doing on the recruiting trail and whether it's enough to be able to get them to place on the football field. Um, I think it's going to become more of an issue in terms of um, position. And again, it's going to be, can they get those guys in the defensive front seven to, to make a difference? I think offensively, they're going to be okay. They're going to get good quarterback play. Um, they're going to have some elite receivers. And I think they're going to have some good running backs. I mean, they're doing a good job. Now, obviously, we're going to see coaching turnover over the next few years, you know, whether um, they are, you know, highly successful or just successful enough. You're going to see coaches come and go. And then, you know, Lincoln Riley's going to have to be able to uh, get guys to fill in that are uh, going to be able to continue to develop at a high level. Uh, but he's done a very good job at Oklahoma. And he's done a very good job really placing his first staff from scratch here at USC. I think uh, Kyle McDonald was an excellent choice. You know, they went after uh, the coach at uh, Georgia Tech. And had him wrapped up for like two weeks, and then he bolted to Texas, and they're able to pivot and get Kyle McDonald, and I think that was an excellent choice, both from a recruiting standpoint, uh, in terms of being a very good evaluator and, and being able to find guys that are not necessarily top two, four, seven guys, but guys that are good players and get those guys to play well 
at Utah, um, but then also uh, a guy that's developed good players. And um, he's got two players that are committed to USC right now in Quentin Joyner and Amarian Peterson, who have both just climbed up the recruiting rankings, which is saying something. You know, guys that were not necessarily the most highly rated guys, and they've just continued to go up and up and up based on their film. So getting two guys that are really sort of peaking coming out of high school, which is uh, what you want. I mean, you want them to peak in college, but they're on that trajectory of going up instead of being guys that were like great sophomore players and junior players and not necessarily playing really well as seniors. So, you know, Kyle McDonald, I think was a great get Josh Hanson. We already talked about him. I think that was a really good get. Um, I think, uh, you know, we're going to see how this goes in the future because the, the receiver position you've had Dennis Simmons there for a long time, you know, are they going to bring in somebody different than Heward um, at the slot position? Or are they comfortable and they feel good about that? Do they decide, you know, to go to a special teams coach? He, he didn't have that Oklahoma. I wouldn't expect him to make that transition and change up the coaching staff uh, from uh, the standpoint of what coaches you have coaching, what positions, or if you're going to make movement to try to open up uh, a, a space for a full-time special teams coach. USC special teams has, has not been bad. I mean, it's been decent. It, it's, it's uh, you know, the punt uh, team early on in the season was kind of a bit of a question. It's been not so bad. It's been pretty good uh, lately. They don't punt the ball a whole lot, so that helps. But uh, when they have punted uh, over the past couple games, it's been pretty decent. Um, they missed a 56-yard field goal, whatever. I mean, that's, you know, big deal. That's They've been very consistent inside uh, really, you know, like 40, 45 yards uh, for the season. Kickoffs have been pretty good, been going through uh, the end zone. I don't see necessarily a big push where you need to have a full-time special teams coach. We saw Lane Kiffin do that. We saw uh, Clay Helton do that with John Baxter, and um, that turned out to be a little bit of a meme. And so I, I think, um, you know, it, it, it's obviously great when you can have great special teams coaches, and, you know, you have to get something from that. You've got to get scores from that, and you can't give up any scores when you're putting those resources in there because otherwise – You've got two receiver coaches, or maybe you've got an extra defensive backs coach or whatever. And you got to understand you're getting that on the road recruiting as well. That's a position where you might be losing a really dynamic recruiter at a crucial position. Uh, whereas you just got a special teams coach. I mean, John Baxter, he did a good job getting some kickers and what have you, but he wasn't helping out with running backs or receivers, some of those positions, which are going to be on the field a lot longer. So uh, from that standpoint, I don't see there being like this, uh, this huge transition in terms of uh, the coaching staff uh, from a recruiting standpoint. But um, overall, yeah, I don't think you can make uh, this, this, this claim that uh, they're not being elite under Lincoln. I just think it's too early. It's just way too early. He has a line in here. says, you said it perfectly in your question by saying it's a good, but not elite class. This class isn't winning national titles. I don't know how you can like say that. this early yeah i'm yeah is, is this class winning national titles i mean yeah that's tough like do would anybody have predicted usc's you know they're like their 2002 class would have helped them get to like a 2003 national title you know that the, the, there was a lot of players on the roster that were previous to paul hackett's recruiting classes and just like that you're going to have guys that were clay helton recruits that are going to be on this on the roster if Lincoln Riley is able to turn that. So it's not like a class. I mean, I understand you're looking for the class. It helps you kind of turn the corner. Um, and the question here is, 
USC's biggest need perhaps is in the, in the front seven and they don't have like, you know, three top defensive tackle commits. Right. So at face value, you say, you know, this is not going to be the class that's going to turn it around for them. But I don't think this was, I don't think that's this class regardless. I mean, you'd have to really pull some rabbits out of some hats to be able to do that. You know, it's just, I, I don't think that should be an expectation right now. I think maybe next year, the following year, you start to look at it that way. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, to be critical about it, I just don't think we're at that point yet to be actually criticizing uh, where the class is or, or what they're doing um, based on the, the talent pool that was available and sort of what USC was working with uh, from the standpoint of uh, last year and where the program was. And with that, I'm going to put this podcast out of its misery, Gerard. Misery. We went... I think it was a good podcast. I think we had some good insight, some great conversations, touched on some discussions happening on the Peristyle. If you don't subscribe to uscfootball.com, get on it. I think you can do it for like a dollar a month or some crazy, something like that. Uh, don't quote me on that because I'm not really sure what the actual – I quoted you. It's quoted. It's on public record. Well, the Peristyle's hopping. It's going. It's always crazy. It's always great discussions. And, uh, you know, get on it and um, get a part of the discussion and get more into the weeds of this stuff because that's where it happens. We get into these conversations with these threads that uh, spiral out of control, and um, it's great. And we jinx ourselves again because, once again, you said there wasn't much to talk about. And here I am staring at a three-hour podcast. You did it. We did it. Again. Are you happy? Are you happy with yourself? <laughs> I'm sure Eddie R. is driving down oh, the Orange County from ecstatic. L.A. County. He's clapping. He's slow clap right now, Eddie R. And uh, slow clap to that last uh, – Person who asked the three-part question, which um, probably is the one that put us over broke, the top. Broke, broke our back. Definitely broke our back. So with that, I'm Chris. That's Gerard. We will catch you next time on Composite Two-Star Recruits. Did you get leopard sauce?